Welcome, friends. Welcome to the DDO DM podcast. It's a podcast for new players, veteran players, and for role-playing enthusiasts, I guess, as it uh, turns out this week. It's been, um, really, guys, about a week since I gave you some really good content. I did... uh, I did try my best this week. It wasn't. I, I recognized that that wasn't my best work. I just uh, distracted and uh, did my best to at least fulfill some commitment, um, even if it was uh, devoid of some of the passion that I normally bring to the podcast. So I know you don't care where I've been, so I'm not going to tell you. But damn those teleport spells! You can end up in some pretty funny places, and um, sometimes. Not all your equipment comes with you, and it's a long way back. So, have a seat, past friends, future friends. Thank you for coming. It's still a crazy thing. It's funny. I was listening to another podcast, and they remarked on the on the very same thing that I kind of I guess has become my opening, and it's just uh, it's just this really strange thing to create this piece of media in a conversational format and uh, knowing that some people have listened to it, some people will listen to it, but nobody is listening to it now. <laughs> so it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing. I love podcasts. I, uh, you know, I, sometimes I'm on the road and I get a, I get a chance to just you know, plug it in and forget, and forget where I am for a little bit and just uh, listen to the topic to topic. I wish uh, maybe one day I can have a maybe a regular guest on or every other week someone can come on if they wanted to and we could just uh, chew the DDO fat as it were. I um, I love DDO. I haven't had too much time to play, but I played a little today. 64-bit, where have you been all my life? I think that 32-bit um, error is probably the best thing that has happened to this game, at least for me. Um, I popped into that, uh, I saw the, the forum post and someone said to switch to 64-bit. I didn't even know that was a thing. And uh, my game looks great and it's running great. Uh, I uh, had one little one little like hiccup of lag, but it was, uh, it's been running great, very clean. Um, all the puzzles I've been doing, there was no delay. You know, usually you know, you're clicking puzzle tiles and it's like, yeah, yeah, I clicked it twice. It just has to catch up, you know, that, that type of thing. Or, and... Um, I haven't experienced that at all. It's been very... It actually reminds me that when the game came out, it was very responsive like that. And um, it's unfortunate the devs are up against that kind of wall when it comes to DDO. It's such a great game. They work real hard on it. But a lot of the game does rely on that real-time... Um, that real-time interactivity with, with each player and their inputs, um, their video game, you know, their controller inputs. And to, um, to delay that in any way really... Uh, uh, impacts you know the outcome of the game as everybody can attest and I'm not even raiding anymore um, I don't even raid anymore but I can only imagine what it's like in a raid when you're really uh, you know you guys have to probably keep counting your head almost like you're playing a song or you're playing the drums or something you gotta like keep track of how many times you do things so hopefully they fix that I'm I'm really uh, I'm really glad they did I love uh, and I knew I knew I was gonna love it um, geez I don't usually talk this much about the uh, what the, the developers do. Usually, I focus on what uh, what we the players either want or what we're doing. And uh, I got to be honest with you, uh, this was a this was a really good update. It was uh, 
the couple of things that stand out that uh, exclamation point, you know, that um, Metal Gear Solid thing. I love that on the Rogue. Um, and I'm not going to point out that uh, I ran uh, one of the Corthos Island quests. Was the, not that Necromancer. What's the, uh, the the one where you're stopping the Sahagwin, the one right there in the beginning where you got to put the ice over the big troll? And, uh, you know, there's that one side, I think you fall down, or you go, it's the left side of the. Uh, the map there of of the breath trap, uh, and uh, you got to spin that first um, first valve, and you know it keeps going off, but there's nothing to disarm. But honestly, it's still such a new mechanic, and I love the way the graphic itself looks. I think it looks really well, like the um, the density of it. Uh, it's very clear, and um, I, I I think it's just a great job. It's, it gives me hope that um, that. Uh, that these, you know, that the developers are not putting us on, that they really do care. Um, I know Codog came out with that excellent forum post. And, um, you know, that brings us to some some of the sad news today and, and kind of really, really motivates me to say something because I wanted to make a post on the forums. My forum name is Mr. Fantastic. And, um, you know, uh, I saw some other posts on there and I know Cordovan made a, a post and locked it right away. I really wanted to, um, I wanted to make a post. I wanted to, uh, actually I wanted, uh, I talked to my, my friend and I said, uh, I said, you know, maybe you could do one of those, uh, you know, like he wrote, uh, we played this, uh, DDO expanded thing a couple weeks back, um, on the forums. We played like, a like a tabletop kind of play by post game and he had come up with uh, lyrics to a couple of different songs, like for you know fantasy songs, like for um, the characters that we were playing. And I just mentioned to him, like, dude, maybe you should, uh, you know, because I, I guess he actually had communication with Humble Fire, my buddy did. I knew him from uh, Voodoo's podcast, and um, I, I, I never had direct in contact with him. My, my friend had direct contact with him, and... Um, I guess Humble Fryer had been supportive to him and uh, kind of his dreams too. And I, you know, I come from an industry that, um, you know, when something like that happens, uh, it's just, a, it's a big deal to lose, a, to lose a brother like that. And I feel for everybody at Standing Stone Games that I just, you know, I kind of petitioned my friend, like, do you think maybe you could post something like us on the forums? Like, you know, something simple, like maybe do a paragraph or... I mean, I could come up with like a couple of sentences that were nice, but if he could come up with, you know, just some kind of a, like a commemorative fantasy poem about Humble Friar and his, uh, what he meant to all of us in the community, his story and his, um, his affect, his generosity, just, uh, to commemorate the man in his life. And, uh. He never got back to me. I, you know, I've been missing him off and on. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that later, but I, I want to cover this humble fire thing because I really wanted to make a forum post, but I'm just not that. Uh, I'm not the talky guy. That's not. I mean, I do the podcast, but I don't. As far as like the forums and stuff, like when you put words to writing, man, that shit's there forever. So, you know, I don't mind playing like a forum post with guys or whatever. Or sometimes I don't even like making suggestions about the game because I just they stay there forever. And uh, 
you know, I'm very uh, appreciative when people do do that. That's why I do the podcast. I don't mind talking about it and giving people praise or, um, you know, criticizing it one way or another or just evaluating it and uh, trying to see what, what ideas are good, what we could use and what not, what we could not use um, for the future of the game. But I, when it comes to Humble Fryer and making a post, I just, I felt really strongly that, like, as a community, we needed someone to say, hey, uh, like, like just for the fans because like my friend is uh you know he didn't know humble fryer but you know he had quite a few interactions with the guy and i knew him from uh voodoo's podcast and certainly definitely said hello to the guy and it's just really sad when um you know we should all, we should all be able to say i think it's fair that while he, that he was at least a public figure for us you know and uh, in the community, and um, that that's impactful when someone when someone crosses to the other side, their journey here ends. It's um, it's an emotional thing. It's a it's a finality. It's you know it's a one way into this world and one way out of this world. And um, right now, all mysteries of the next life are clear for Humble Fryer. And um, while we don't know what happens when we cross that fold we do know his life and can celebrate that as was and um i know there was you know and i have the forms pulled up right here so i can actually just go right to uh right to one of the threads but i just you know i'm i'm one of those guys like sometimes i get nitpicky and um i really i just didn't um I didn't like the name of the thread, and I thought um, maybe I'll just make one for myself. I don't know. I just feel like this is it right here. Did Humble Friar pass away? And um, I know that's a question that needs to be asked, but that's not like in memoriam where we can all just, um, you know, if we wanted to say something... um, say something about the man, um, his work, his life. And, uh, I wouldn't want it to go under a, a, a thread name like that. I would want it to be, um, something that obviously commemorated the man. And not, you know, in my head, I said something poetic and I'm not that way. And I just, I know my buddy can do that. And I just asked him, he has not gotten back to me. I'm hoping that he just does. Um, maybe he'll listen to the podcast and, uh, <laughs> he'll do the right thing. But, you know, it's a hard thing to do, you know. Um, but I uh, I was very surprised that they went, with Standing Stone Games went forward with the uh, update. I'm glad they did. The machine does grind on. But I just feel, to me, um, I don't feel like Standing Stone Games is a huge place to work. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I think, uh, you know, and I don't know the, you know, the, how the place is run or what, what it's like. And I know just from listening to some of Cordovan's content that, you know, a lot of the stuff has been, you know, work from home. And maybe because of that, um, you know, people didn't get to know Humble Fryer as personally, personally as I could have if he was in the office every day. But to me, it's just, um, you know, it's just kind of like one of those things where we stand together um, and just recognize uh, someone's contribution uh, to this world. And, um, 
mourn their passing, celebrate their life, and uh, and hope that now um, you know they're in a better place. And they, he now knows more than every developer on the planet, <laughs> you know. And uh, he was really genuine. Um, he's a gen, just a genuine, kind soul, um, a bear of a man. And it's interesting to me how I hate to. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, okay? So I'm just going to be honest because this is a serious thing when someone passes away. So I'm just going to say what I believe, and um, because it it's meaningful to me and has meaning to me. But it's interesting to me that uh, God always seems to give the right people the strength. Um, he just always seems to pick the right ones and. From everything I've learned about Humble Friar, he was, uh, you know, a bear of a man, and uh, just had just had a huge heart. He's very generous, and um, very open, and uh, very disarming. And uh, it's just so perfect, you know. Some, some, you know. Someone that he could be such a great protector for someone, you know. Uh, you think of like a druid, right? Like when they transform into the bear, you know, and they get the tank form, right? That's you know when I think of humble friar, I think of that. You know, that image kind of pops into my head as a, a man with great strength, but a man that uh, uses it in the right way. You know, he doesn't use it to get his way, but uses it to protect his friends and his family, and. Um, you know, he chased his dream and he got it, and that's uh, that's certainly more than most of us can say. I um, in my life, I've you know I've done okay. My dad always says I'm successful, if that matters. <laughs> my mom does too, but I, I don't feel that way. I feel like I, you know I think we all do. We could all do a little bit more, but uh, for humble friar, he uh, he worked hard and he he chased his dream and he got it, and that's um, that's a great example to leave behind. Um, for all of us to to emulate and um i wanted to take a minute and just celebrate the man i i didn't know too much about him i listened um a little bit on voodoo's uh, broadcast today i was surprised voodoo even got on i don't uh, i get real emotional about this kind of stuff i um death is a it's a strange thing man it's so final and um It really it does make you value the rest of the time you have. It makes you reevaluate it, but I don't. Um, I don't think it changes your heart. You know, I don't think. I think it's a wake up call, and I think it's a shock to the brain and to the um, the intellectual sides of our our beings, because um, there's no um, disregarding the evidence that um, well, we're not going to live forever. But I don't think that, um, you know, the fear of it ending or the fear of uh, death is what really works the human heart. And um, by all accounts, and certainly um, from my interactions with Humble Fire, he was very gracious and he was very kind and he was very giving. And he always uh, brightened Voodoo's channel. It was always great when he came on. And uh, just a great guy, just gave back. You know, he was one of those guys that just, uh, 
you know, you need more people like that. You know, he, he was a developer. We all respected him. And I know he wasn't, you know, Severlin, you know, he wasn't writing the story. But, you know, we, uh, he could, he's still, he's part of the team. You know, he's one of the guys. He's one of the real DMs, you know, the real DDO DM. He is one. And um, he was just always so gracious with that and so kind and so informative. If he could be, if he could help, he would help, you know. And uh, and we should, I just really, um, today when I was perusing the forums, I, I was really hoping somebody would uh, would just have a thread like that that just, we could just praise the man and uh, and uh, celebrate his life together, even if it was uh, on the forums. So, I'm just gonna take a moment of silence for our friend Humble Fryer. We all have um, our own contacts with death. And uh, anytime someone passes away that I know of or have had contact with in a friendly way, it always, um, you know, those those old scars, they always kind of get sensitive, you know, like a, like a bum knee in the rain. You know, you get a bum knee, you can hear it rain. If you get a broke or you broke a bone or something, it, you know, you know it's going to rain or snow, something like that. So... In honor of Humble Fryer, let's continue. I wish he was here to see how uh, how, how much the lag's improved. Because it, it really has. I, I didn't get to play much today. I probably played uh, 30 minutes, maybe. and um, But I loved every second of it. The, uh, number one, I didn't realize the graphics could be so sharp. I feel like they're sharper in 64-bit. Uh, I feel like I'd been just always run on 32-bit, I guess, and... Uh, you know, I always wondered when I watch videos how everybody got there so clean, but I, uh, I don't have the world's best computer, but it's not bad, you know, and um, I just figured it's, ah, it's probably I don't have a good enough video card or something, or I, you know, my settings are wrong. Actually, what it, I really used to blame it on, I used to mod Sky, the shit out of Skyrim, and um, like the reason why I bought this computer was just to mod Skyrim, and it's not old, it's actually, it's a couple years old, but I um, it's specifically I bought it for just Skyrim and only Skyrim and only the mod Skyrim. No intentions of firing up my DDO account again. And um, this past what September November is something I uh, I did do, and I'm glad I did. But um, I always kind of blame like my, my when my computer doesn't do operate the way I think it should at the level I think it should. I always blame the fact that I you know you know I had over four thousand Skyrim mods. <laughs> at one point downloaded you know, onto my game, onto my computer here. Um, that's kind of what I want to talk about today is uh, is games. Um, we have great changes with uh, with DDO, really good ones. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's a necessary evil. These updates. I don't know if it's a different team. I would like to know if it's a different team, and I would like them to say that it's a different team. Um, so like if it's a different team of dudes, dudettes that work on, uh, that do this kind of stuff, I'd like them to be, uh, I'd like them to at least have a team name and us to know that this is the work they do and that they should get, pra- we, we should be praising the shit out of them uh, right now on the forums 
thanking the crap out of them. And um, we should know who to direct that thanks to because I, uh, granted it was only uh, 30 or so minutes that I played, a little more than 30 minutes. Um, but I tell you, man, I, I no lag. My picture was crystal clear and um, enjoyed every second of it. I clicked the quest, entered right in, no delay. Um, no, um, no delay with the, uh, with, you know, with the puzzles and stuff. I just loved it. Uh, no delays as far as, you know, swinging and hitting an enemy, instant contact. I didn't have to wait for, you know, numbers to pop up a second later. So it was good. Uh, noticeably, a noticeable improvement. And, um, I hope, uh, I hope it sticks. You know, I hope this one sticks. Sometimes, you know, people like to say, oh, they've tried this before, you know, they tried to fix lag before, but, you know, Anybody that knows anything about computers, and and I don't know, I'm not a a pro here, I'm not a programmer, but what I do know is a ship breaks down over time, and you know, you you change hardware, you update software, and sometimes those old fixes, they don't stick as good because of just the way, you know, the the way technology moves forward. It just, it doesn't, doesn't keep the same rigidity, consistency, density, hardness, you know, those fixes don't stay. So for whatever reason, a piece of code drops, a dot gets moved, who knows? And uh, all of a sudden, like there's a, you know, some kind of memory thing that happens and it's not, you know, causes an issue. Um, so, I, you know, while I don't know if any of that's true, what I just said, I just know in my mind, I, I can imagine that there's a lot of different ways over the years and in the life of a 17-year game that um, many things can uh, can contribute to, um, you know, the, the demise of the integrity of the connection between our computers and, and theirs. And, um, you know, I don't know all the other back-end stuff, and I know there's issues with that. And I did, you know, read the Code Dog post, and I'm aware of some of the stuff that they had said, too. Um, I personally think that... Um, in the thread, there is not only the answer, but a clue to um, just lack of leadership during that time frame when the game was being coded, because I think there was a statement that uh, went something like this. I'll paraphrase it. You know, I asked for what the uh, what our guidelines were, and he handed me a 3.5 player handbook. And um, anybody that was handed a 3.5 player handbook should have known, right? He should have known to um to probably take a look at the the rule set itself, and um you know it's not in anybody's fault. It's in the past, but it, it would have been good if somebody did that and then took leadership. Hey, guys, you know, and just the uh, you know just the warrior catalog here alone, these three books, you know, you know. Uh, with the Nine Swords and, you know, all the uh, Warrior, Samurai, all the different books. If you just combine those, it's like 400 feet. Hey, guys, I think we have an issue with the feet thing. You know, and at least then document that. Hey, so-and-so brought this up. He said we had an issue with the feet thing. Uh, you know, team lead said we're going to go forward with this change and um, uh, we got approval from management to, to do it. So that way we know. You know, that way there's a, that way there's a paper trail we know what exactly happened um, in that decision-making process and if there was any any concern at all because it seems to me that um, 3.5 is such an obviously intensive uh, feat. It is the most intensive version of, of Dungeons & Dragons ever. Um, that's why uh, 
for many years, Pathfinder was able to ape 3.5 in the rule set. It it was specifically designed to to give players the max amount of uh, customization they could have. Um, Wasn't always balanced perfectly, but it was certainly had uh, that going for it. And um, you would think that anybody making a game based on 3.5 rule set should have known that, you know, there's more than 10 feats in the game that people can select. That's in the past. They've done a great job moving forward. But I think it's important as far as after-action reviews go that we uh, we at least address the fact that um, we should have known better Standing Stone games. We should have known better. And um, uh, anybody that wants to speak up, you know, you're going to be heard. You might not. We might not take the change. We'll take it under advisement. We'll document it, and we'll run it by the people that matter. You know, and um, that way, you know, a guy like Severlin inherits the game, or however this works. Um, you know, these guys aren't just um, apologizing, straight apologizing. They can say, "Hey, look, this is what happened, guys. This was the decision at the time. We still don't have any further insight, but this we did. You know, some of the stuff we did know. So." It just it's it's good transparency, right? Um, I want the game to be around for a long time. I um, love the game. I love DDO. Um, nothing like a little break. I'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, I uh, bought a bunch of Pathfinder Two E stuff, and um, so I want to say this kid's name because I pl- fucking talk to him all the time, but. I do have that principle. I don't talk with people, and I met him on the forums, so I'm not going to use his name. So anybody that sends me, you know, if you if you contact me through the forums and people have, I'm never going to use your name, even when you say it's okay. It's just going to be a principle thing I have. So my friend that I know from the forums, and um, uh, he kind of pushed me into getting a little, didn't push me. I was interested in it, and um, he had a couple of the books too, so I... I grabbed him and we started going through those books together and uh, putting characters together, running running combat scenarios and uh, certain things together. And then, um, you know, he was praising how great it is uh, with this horizontal progression thing. It's so much better than D&D 5e. And I've not really that familiar with D&D 5e. I wasn't until a couple of weeks ago. I got myself very familiar. Um, I played um, a session online um, and uh, like a true like a, a true session online, and um, it was a it was really fun. I do see just the uh, the stark different the stark difference in character building and how they work. And so people praise Pathfinder for its horizontal progression and its not nerf but its restriction on caster classes and the balance between martial classes. And um, and melee classes, and uh, that balance has always been skewed in three point five. Um, it just always has been. It, it usually, I mean, I, 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 dude, when I played fucking two E or second edition, I was like fucking thirteen the last time we had a session. So I don't remember the rules, and I did play the Baldur's Gate games after that, and um, I refreshed my memory of the rules. But I'll be honest with you, I don't. Um, I don't remember the all the th- all the stuff. Um, I could if I had the thing in front of me. I'm not going to go that far. But my memory is that casters at a certain level as well, even in second edition, always kind of 
got really powerful. Like at some point they just, it tips, you know, all their defensive spells. It just tips the balance and they just always outdo melees. I mean, when you have a, a spell like Wish or a third level spell like Fly, um, that's really, really handy and it's hard to compete with. I think you can move some spell slots around and keep that at um, level uh, level three or whatever. Um, it's important that magic is powerful. I think it's also important that magic is more powerful than martial classes. I think martial classes have their own niche and they're magical in their own way. Um, and when I think of it, I think of the warders and I think of Rand Althor from um, the Wheel of Time, but mainly his training from land and land's training really about the void and putting, you know, all the, you know, all your thoughts into the, to the void and kind of going into this zone where it's, um, I guess you could mimic it with the barbarian raids, like you're, you're going into the void. And so by doing so, you're more dangerous. Um, so you could role play that even in DDO. Uh, so I think that there's, there's cause for heroic and fantastic martial action. Um, I think, uh, some books that do it well, not all books, but some books do it justice as the Drizzt books. Um, I don't remember which one I'm, I'm thinking of. I've read them all up until The Spell Plague. Um, you know, I'm an old school Drizzt guy, so I got into them after Wheel of Time, after the Terry Goodkind, after Sword of Shannara series. I started reading Drizzt books after those. So I didn't get introduced to the Dungeons & Dragons books until much later. I always played Dungeons & Dragons as a kid. But then when I got into books, I got into like spy books first and then slowly made my way back into fantasy. So the Driz books were, I voraciously ate them up after coming from, you know, obviously, if you've read the Wheel of Time books, you know that uh, the Driz books was like reading a graphic novel. So I, they, they do it well, though, in terms of anytime they have a caster and I'm thinking of, uh, what's the guy from Candlekeep, the cleric? And there's a couple other times they have casters with them. And um, you'll notice, though, if you pay attention in those books, that a lot of times uh, Drizzt, Salvatore surrounds Drizzt with mainly martial classes, you know. And um, some somebody might have some kind of special ability, but for the most part, um, it, you know, it's the weapons that are magical or, you know, they're, they're, they're bestowed some magical item that um, is able to to give them the power they need to succeed. Um, but then it's mostly about um, you know the char- the characters themselves and, and their own martial ability. And there's a couple times they blend it well. Um, I just can't remember when it is, but th- you know they they go with Dudermont on his ship and they um, they travel the Isles there, him and Caterbury. And there's a couple of really good scenes where um, you know there there there's magic involved and it's very powerful. You know it's a uh, it's it's oom, it's, um, you know, it's wow. And I think it should be. Um, it, it totally should be. Um, I, I, if you haven't played Temple of Elemental Evil, I've suggested it on the podcast. It's literally 3.5 coded into a video game. Um, what Troika did with that game is amazing. And um, if you download the patches for it from circleof8.org, and get it running on your computer, you will be very happy. If you like 3.5, 
and are interested in, in building it, the patches that they offer will you know unlock a couple of extra levels for you and add a couple feats and uh, really um, really because some of the feats you know they don't come till later. So the game I think stops at level ten, but the Circle of Eight patch could you can update it almost to level twenty. Um, and the game is huge; it can be played many different ways, but it does fail. It's a great mechanical, uh, mathematical representation of 3.5 Dungeons and Dragons. It's not, and at the time, it was at least as good as Baldur's Gate and any Bioware game, as um, or any game on the market as far as presenting role-play mechanics for characters and character classes, morality. Okay, so if that all makes sense to you... Um, I'm going to briefly touch on one of today's topics that I want to talk about, which is Baldur's Gate 3. Because what Baldur's Gate 3 does is it um, translates the D&D 5 edition rules. Now, from what I've seen, it's been pretty damn accurate. Um, I don't know all like the movement. Some of the st- I know I've read a lot, enough on the forums to know that not all the bonus actions and swift actions are working properly or they're coded differently um, in the... in in uh, Baldur, Baldur's Gate 3. So it's not a completely faithful 100% um, arithmetic translation like Troika's 3.5 is. And that's monumental for, for Troika to do that. Um, and then still maintain that high level of um, role-playing for the time. What Baldur's Gate 3 does is it translates the rules, at least to me, for someone... It does, I know some of the rules enough that, you know, when it happens to my guy, um, and just for shits and giggles, I downloaded uh, two mods for it, the Expansion Warlock, um, and then I downloaded, or I downloaded the Expanded Warlock, um, then there's another one I downloaded called just Expansion, and they both uh, mess with the level cap, they both... Um, and I, the third mod I downloaded, which is a companion to expansion, so the expansion mod and the five e spells mod that I downloaded are by the same author. They go together and they allow the player to progress to level twenty with the necessary feat selections and spell selections uh, that are available. It also adds per the per the D and D fifth edition rules. It adds, um, you know, the the, the appropriate uh, effects for each class. Um, it's on all the downloads for the expansion. There's no bugs on it that have been reported um, in the bug thing for the Nexus mods, and it's got a lot of really high praises. There was a video that came out on the expanded Warlock, which is a separate mod, um, and that adds a an extra Warlock class, like a Warlock Plus, and it adds. Um, the like the, two other packs in the the pack of the tome and the pack of the blade, but then it also adds the big thing for me is it adds the hex blade, and um, I started playing the game very thoroughly through the hex blade and I noticed that some of the things, um, with number one with the interpretation of that because it's a, because it's an additional class, it um, doesn't take um, sort of direct copy of. Larian's version of the Warlock that's in the game right now. It's their own version of the Warlock. And it's very good. It's very fun. I enjoyed it. And But when I started looking into the mods again, I wanted to um, 
I wanted to see how much experience is actually there. And I know reports are that you can get to level seven. Um, so I wanted to uh, just see what that's like. And I don't want to heavily mod the game right now because it's you know still early access. Um, and I will probably heavily mod it later once I play through it. Um, I will play through it modded if they don't give me the Hexblade. If it doesn't release with the Hexblade, I'm, I'm playing through with the Hexblade because it's that much fun. Um, somebody's also working on a, a werewolf archetype thing, so you can play as a werewolf. Right now, there are no uh, some of the animations are real buggy and it doesn't work for all the races. But once it's released, like you're going to see some really good mods come out for this game. Anyways, back to the subject at hand. What Larian Studio, Studios gets super right, and the big, big advancement is the role play side of this game is incredible. And the fact that the role play choices you make when you build your character and continue to raise your character through the levels matters. The proficiencies in your skills matters. And um, it matters in a big way. And, a, and you know, I... Um, I think it's going to give the game a lot, not only a lot of replayability, but it's going to give it that that feel that you roll the dice and you roll the one, buddy, and uh, that happens. But it but it makes every other class a little bit valuable. You know, the bard class would be pretty valuable for the inspiration, but there's a lot of other ways to affect the outcome of a dice roll during a role play encounter. You know, they give you XP for that stuff, so they're not leaving you out, and um, it's just a very very well done. It definitely takes the genre. Uh, the next step, you know, it's the next step forward. And um, it's it's a lot of work, you know, because they have the narrated side. There is a, an actual dungeon master narr- narrator. And then there's um, sort of like an in-game narrator kind of thing. And then there's the characters that speak. And those three layers uh, of... Um, of communication on different levels to the player uh, really round out that experience of um, you're playing this character and uh, these are the decisions you made to build him and uh, how is he going to react? Is he going to react the way you built him to react? Or now that you're in the situation, are you going to change your mind and you wish you had him, you wish you could react this way? Um, Very, very fun system. And, um, if, if not an exact translation, very close to the 5th uh, edition rule set as far as advantage and disadvantage. I bring it up because, you know, I, I was running some, just to summarize the last uh, 20 minutes or so, I was, uh, my absence is, isn't due to many things, but I spent some of my free time pouring over Pathfinder 2E and learning that and then running some tests, combat scenarios, builds with my friend. Then also, I took some time and I downloaded uh, some of the D&D Beyond stuff and got into a, uh, like, just like an internet game on uh, Roll20 and um, just a pickup game and, uh, like, saw the rules in action and and got a chance to play uh, in real time with other players around a tabletop, even if it is virtually. Um... It is different than playing in person for sure, 100%. Um, Voodoo and I kind of disagree a little bit on this, but um, he agrees that uh, um, we kind of had a similar tabletop experience where, you know, we say what our character does and um, 
he, I think he likes, uh, I, I didn't mean to come across this way when I said it, so we disagree, but maybe I just wasn't articulate enough. Um, Matt Mercer's uh, critical role, I was kind of, I criticized that a little bit because it's um, a group of performers, uh, quite honestly, uh, playing a scripted game. And that's okay. Uh, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And was it all scripted? Uh, were there some surprises thrown in? Oh, absolutely. But was it? Is it largely scripted? Yes. Um, I think if you you take a look at uh, the interactions with the characters and stuff, I think you can see that it's um, scripted and direction is given. And uh, there are some upsets for sure, and people do some wild things. But uh, it's a, it's a scripted show. It's an entertainment that we consume, and that's fine. But that's not Dungeons and Dragons at the table, and that's not what I grew up with, or what I think we should put forth as like the standard of a tabletop game. Because to me, when you play Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, there's a little theatric to it, but it's um, you know you're you're it's like I said before, it's that you know agreed delusion that um you know for the next foreseeable future till this mountain dew bottle runs out this bag of chip runs out until the pizza gets here i'm going to uh be this character and i mentioned one of my you know one of my 3.5 guys was reed ghost elf so for however long that takes i'm going to be this guy reed ghost elf that was my last uh, 3.5 character and um you know i you know i would say what he would do and yeah, he had a cool backstory and stuff. Uh, and for the most part, we played serious games. Of course, you know, uh, maybe when I was a kid, we uh, a little bit of the de- Devil's Lettuce or whatever. And maybe uh, maybe when we got a little bit older, somebody had some whiskey. And it was fun. You know, it was a fun game. And uh, there's definitely some, uh, some, some fun antics. But the point is that we, we weren't ever acting. And it was never like a show like... If somebody did get into character, it was never like uh, to either impress or to. Um, it was their their way, their expression of being in Dungeons and Dragons, being in the world of Greyhawk, being in the world of Dragonlance. So if they took on an accent, and I did have a friend that liked to speak dwarf, and um, but he was that guy when he was he wasn't just acting it out for us as a performance piece. And I understand that some people enjoy that side of it. And, um, but that's not the game, right? The game is that you are that character. And it's similar to, um, uh, to theater in that it is role play. But what is dissimilar is that we're pretending that this is real, right? And that there are real consequences and, and the numbers and the die reflect um, the reality of the world itself. So, all in all, we're um, we're kind of interacting in this totally separate environment, um, and it's not uh, it's not a story we're we're telling for consumption, except for ourselves. We're not worried about where the camera is going to be, what the next line is going to be, uh, if something is going to be a surprise to the audience if we should deliver the line like this or deliver the line like that, if we should come at it a little somber, or maybe we should just make a joke and it's all fine. 
we don't uh, we don't worry about that stuff. You just you inhabit the character, you inhabit the world, and you play the game. And um, yeah, some people uh, some people like to talk in uh, you know in a Scottish accent, and for them that's a, that's a dwarf. You know, um, I had a friend one time. He had his name. He named his the last time I played pen and paper. It turned out to be a one shot, right? But um, no, it was three sessions, and uh, it was three sessions. I apologize. And um, the last one, there was only three of us there, including the DM four. And uh, my friend had a. Uh, one of my friends went through two characters because he was like, he kept getting himself killed. Like he thought he could run, you know, run the world, and he would get mad. And it was like. It was the opposite of the DM versus the player. It was like the player versus the DM, but like we're all trying to convince him to, to just stop running ahead into traps. He's not trying to kill you. We're in a dungeon and it's Dungeons and Dragons and there are traps in there. <laughs> so, you know, we were still pretty young, still in our teens. I was 18 or 19. And, uh, my, I just remember the, uh, my friend had this rogue, and his rogue's name was Tech. He he would have been playing the uh, dwarf, and uh, his dwarf. You know, sometimes we would play multiple characters, and he didn't want to play his dwarf. He wanted to play his uh, his halfling rogue Tech. You know, and can you can you guess what Tech's weapons were? Two daggers, right? And uh, he's like supremely edgelord, and he tried to do this like uh, I don't know I don't know accents from the UK but I don't know if it's a hackney or whatever kind of accent it was and it was fucking terrible and um, he's trying to like be the character and he just that was his thing like when he was the dwarf I think it made him feel like he was the character when he could do the voice and uh, dude he just kept dropping the accent and changing it like mid you know like mid thing and it was like you know, we were fucking laughing it was a good time that was a fun time he ended up dropping the whole thing anyways and uh, you know fuck you guys kind of thing and just no, uh, Tech goes over here and he looks for traps. You know? Kind of funny. But I didn't mean to um, come across the way. I know I think I was pretty hard on Critical Role's representation, but I didn't mean it to be um, necessarily a negative calling out of them, just that, uh, that that's not Dungeons & Dragons. Dungeons & Dragons is not performance art around a table. It's... Um, it's uh, you create a character, and um, depending on how the game is going to run, you come up with a backstory. Maybe it has holes in it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the DM is aware that um, you guys want to play a story with intertwining backstories, and you guys are aware that's going to happen. You don't know how. Maybe you don't know. Maybe he asked you to leave a couple places blank, or maybe he just asked you for a couple of key pieces of your background that he's going to twist. You don't. Uh, you never know when you play a, a tabletop game, how that's going to go. But my point remains is that that's um, very different. That's He's trying to set the world up for you so that it's more real, you know, and that has nothing to do with performance per se. You know, and when you're scripting a, a show, your um, reality of the show is not, you know, it, it's there, it exists in itself. Um but uh, it's the presentation of the show is what you're worried about, what the audience sees, what the audience knows, when they know it. And um, you know, if you're clear enough, if you're not clear enough, if, you know, you're, if it's too broad of a stroke, if it's not finely tuned, because you're building to you know, a crescendo and the, you know, the denouement. So 
with Dungeons and Dragons, when you sit around a table, you're not building to any real particular. As anybody who has, as a kid, thirteen year old sat around the table. Um, sometimes you never leave the bar because you know you pretend that your guys got drunk and you tried to you know steal the pants off the guy next to you. you started a bar fight and you all died. Set the set the tavern on fire. So, you know, they, they, you know, the games go crazy like that. But I think the reality is that that is the reality. We're in that reality and in that story and in that moment. We are that character. And um, I know sometimes that mimics you know, some method acting stuff. But um, for the most part, I think that's how Dungeons & Dragons players approach D&D. Like, oh, I'm making this character to be this character. And um, you're going to play him in a game with other people, but um, you're going to be him. Like in the game, you're going to do what he does. Now, you know, we can talk about people's experience levels and, you know, and how that ma- matches up with how they play the character. Um, you know, and, and it's okay if they play the character like themselves. I'm not going to, I'm not here to judge anybody's level of comfortability, but I am here to kind of say that, um, when we play Dungeons and Dragons, especially at the table, that we are that character. And I would submit to you that um, when you make that character, you are thinking like that character. You are trying to experience um, the game world as that character. And just to hammer that home, one of the reasons why Skyrim uh, is so relevant even today has everything to do with the modding community and everything to do with the ability to mod the game and allow you to be that character you know i don't know if you've seen some of the let's plays but try to play your game like that you know try to you know you can you know you can do that with skyrim it, you you're playing alone for sure but it is a lot of fun to um to go through that game and to to have a real backstory and uh, and really do what your character would do, not what you know is the best, most powerful thing to do. It's a lot of fun to play through the game. You will have incredibly fun experiences. Um, one experience that I always was trying to perfect, and um, I'll keep this brief, but I think this just goes to the point of how much people will chase after that fantasy um especially in a video game representation and that's why i think it's relevant to this ddo conversation because as we wrap this section up it will lead into the next section of all of it will the the larian studio stuff the toei stuff and the skyrim stuff you know i would spend hours and hours modding my uh, going through the mod list reading the mod list and you know working them out test character test character test test levels trying to balance it myself, you know, trying to make sure it's not too too overpowered. But the reality was some of it I didn't mind being overpowered. And the fantasy that I always tried to perfect um, the most, the one I spent the most time on, was um, the werewolf. I loved the werewolf in the vanilla. I loved it. I uh, I played the game through as a werewolf, um, I didn't care that it was the most powerful and that it sometimes I had to switch to other methods to get the job done. I just loved it. Um, 
when I started modding after I'd played through the game, I um and I played through like the main game, but I didn't play through all the side content on purpose because I I just wanted some of the main vanilla game to be left unexplored. But I added a lot of content mods and I added a ton of uh werewolf playthroughs and they're not all um compatible with each other. Some are now. You can um I, mean, I think you can have like up to thirty two point forty two point uh you know, talent tree for the werewolf. So you can play that thing beyond the, uh, you know, from, to the, you know, to the stars and back. Um, but there was a, uh, you know, there was some uh, programming in the game for uh, uh, vampires and uh, werewolves and uh, Argonians and, oh shit, the cat race to use their claws as weapons. And they remove that, and and you know they have the typical boxing kind of punch. Well, there's a mod to undo that, and there's a specific mod that allows it to only apply to the uh, player character and under certain conditions, whether he's an Argonian, whether he's one of those qualifying races, or whether he's a vampire, or whether he is a a werewolf. He's infected and fully, you know, he's fully realized werewolf. So that would mean that your claws. Um, you could use your hand as claws, and you know the animations. Um, it's it's dated. It's not the best, but it's good. You know the hands flare out. They look deadly, like they you know they don't look like um, uh, you know the werewolves in uh, DDO. I always make fun of them. They always look like they uh, they need medical help with the way they hold their arms. And um, I know they've tried to work. I, I've seen them try to work their magic on them, and I don't know if it's like the way. The hunchback is because it's not really. Sometimes it's not like a towering uh, stance. That's you know he's kind of the werewolf is arched over and looking down. Sometimes it feels like the knoll where the werewolf just has like a like a fucking you know like the hunchback in Notre Dame. He looks like that with his arms all twisted up in front of him. But they did a really good job of of uh, in the werewolf form of you know keeping it out and the you know the claws are kind of pointed down in a neutral stance and um just the way the the werewolf itself looks and there's many different mods you can use to grow your werewolf like if you eat eat stuff uh like eat people because there's more mods you can do to just so many mods i mean i had my biggest werewolf playthrough i think was at 1800 mods um so i'm not going to get into all the mods but i will tell you just this one quick story about it so my guy had um i basically he didn't have um good weapons he had a a couple of hand axes he would use every now and again, but they were just like steel hand axes, you know. He mostly just used his claws because I used them like, I pretended the hand axes were like, uh, they're really there for like cutting wood and stuff, even though, you know, you wouldn't, you'd probably want a real axe to do that. But I didn't want him to carry like a firewood axe. I, I just thought the hand axe was appropriate. And um, he carried a bow because he would hunt with the bow. Um, that's just more to keep him human. Like he felt like that kept him more human because you could hunt with the, with his uh, animalistic senses, there was other, um, you know, in the talent trees, I was able to find talent trees that allowed me to buff his unarmed damage, both in human form and uh, his speed in human form as well. So I kind of role played that he he never really did that, uh, used that too much, um, at least when he was like hunting for food or hunting for skins to make stuff and sell stuff and live his life. And I tried to very much. Uh, played through the game like that that you know he was kind of a hunter and 
uh, kind of bore this curse and didn't want anything to do with the real world. So he ended up, he had to be the dragonborn because someone has to be the dragonborn. But I always pretended that it was, uh, you know, the girl you meet in the inn. I always kind of pretended it was her and I was helping her. Um, but we were going to the Akaviri temple there. And, um, you know, I was out of arrows for some reason. And uh, I think the battle on the way in was tough. And I just limited my, you know, you can very easily overpower yourself. So I thought it's fun to you know, kind of limit it. And I think if you were engaged in a huge battle to get into a, a temple like that, I don't think you're going to be slowing down to uh, assess your resources. You might make sure you're not being followed, but I don't think you're going to like, gather arrows and get potions and stuff. So I tried to play the game like that. Not that I wouldn't always, I wouldn't scavenge. I just, in that particular fight, I remember being like, pretty much like a, almost like a war type battle, like a mini battle where there's a lot of enemies. So I felt like the, like I should push forward. Because um, that's what you'd want to do. You'd want to get to the safety of the temple and, um, I don't know, try to complete the mission. But, um, so, you know, you have a couple of the NPCs with you and there's a big battle on the outside. Uh, you go into the temple and it continues. And there's this um, little jump puzzle that you have to do. And as you're doing the jump puzzle, the main floor of the temple opens up and, you know, the lighting in Skyrim is great. It's a dark temple, but there's you know, some god rays coming through and they're hitting, uh, you're hitting that that uh, carved wall that's got the whole story of, um, you know, the dragons and the end of the world. And, um, geez, what were those guys, those Akaviri guys, the guys we were talking about, the, uh, like the Dragon Knights. I don't forget the name, but it's got their, their story on there too. And um, we're fighting through and you know, I had some pretty good armor and stuff. And I didn't, I wasn't like a weenie. Like I didn't like not play the game and have good stuff intentionally. But I tried to just keep it as real as possible. And uh, I tried to act like my guy. So I didn't always, my quest didn't always end the way I wanted them to. But that was okay because I was this guy. I wasn't me trying to just game the game. I'd already done that. I was, my goal was to play this guy who was a werewolf and carrying this curse. And part of his gig was I didn't want him to control it. So I had this whole rule, and I don't know where the piece of paper is now, but I had a piece of paper, um, and I wrote it out, and it was right next to me. I didn't want it on the computer so that I had to look it up. I wanted it right there so I kept myself honest. And I could only like force a transformation like so many times in the whole game, in the whole gameplay. So I had to really pick when I was going to do that. Um, and um, honestly, I forget when I did it, but I remember I picked it, the force transformation at a time when I knew I could get the most XP. So that's uh, something I kind of did out of character. So it wasn't like I didn't have any fun playing the game. I had a great time. But to get back to the story, we're invading this, uh, taking over this castle or this uh, temple back. And I got the claws out. You know, my guy's, he's doing the attacks with the claws and it looks great in human form. It looks great. And, um, you know, he's got this growth on his face. And I had, um, I downloaded a mod that allowed me to, uh, grow his facial hair at a certain stages. So depending on the mood, I would change what his face would look like because I did have him change sometimes under the light of the moon. Although I did take the enhancements that lessen that effect. It was, you know, I modded 42 extra feats or whatever into it and I was okay with taking them and that being powerful. Uh, the whole point was to fulfill the were werewolf fantasy. And, uh, you know, he did pretty well with his claws and we were, we're fighting through and I had to make the jump 
And, uh, you know, well, it didn't fit all three of us, all three of the NPCs, but I made the jump, and then I had to make another jump, and I'm surrounded by the three melee guys, and there's a caster, and I'm fighting, fighting. My The NPCs get up there, they're fighting with their swords and their shield and their axe, and, you know, there's the old guy, there's the, uh, you know, the, the woman from the inn, and I'm just thinking, this is so awesome. And then all of a sudden, I take some kind of crit, and uh, my guy staggers back, and, uh, you know, they're saying their lines and they're, oh, forward and charge. And and I'm like, shit. And then I get hit again. And then I think I'm going to fall off the, the ledge. And then if I fall off the ledge, I got to start the jump puzzle over. So I'm really trying to stay on the ledge. But if I stay on the ledge, I'm definitely going to die. But I forgot that I put this in there because it only happened once. I had this little uh, mod that I downloaded. And this only happened once. Uh, and it was this time, and uh, I had it so that set that if I, it's a it was a mod that if you took lethal damage, your character would he- change and then heal to full and be be taken on his werewolf form, and I thought that um, that seems really powerful, but it only ever happened once because you know I managed my health. I wasn't I didn't, I didn't force that kind of stuff to happen, and I forgot that it was in the game. But uh, that was the beauty of it. You know, 1,800 mods and, you know, 80 hours of gameplay later, I'd forgot that it was there. It never went off. And the beauty of it was it went off and my guy changed. And I was surprised. Like, I was shocked. I was like, oh, I thought I was going to die. And I forgot. It was a, it was a beautiful moment of, um, you know, I, I tricked myself out of this, uh, remembering this mod was there. I had no idea. And I, I mean, my guy went to town, obviously. You know, he... Uh, I don't know how many talent trees I had filled out, but he was not all the way fleshed out at that point. But he, you know, it doesn't take much in the werewolf form to be fleshed out. And uh, he, uh, you know, I didn't buff him with any uh, armor spells or anything. Sometimes I would, um, but uh, he, he mainly more wore, uh, you know, like uh, you know, the fur armor. So he didn't uh, he didn't have any extra armor except for what was in the talent tree and he just went to town and i remember um i had the moonlight tales mod installed and uh i knew as soon as what i was going to do i was so in tune with the character and uh i played him so long there's a hotkey for a like beast jump that you can do in werewolf form and you can set up the hotkey through the mod menu so you can't do this on xbox or ps5 or anything you have to do it on pc cuz you need the um that mod menu uh, editor thing, whatever that mod menu is, uh, and you need to run the Skyrim script extender, and you can't do that on Xbox. So this transformation happens, and uh, I'm still in the middle of this jump puzzle, right? And I'm still pretty far away from the main stage and the main force, and I hit that that button, and what that button does is it cues up the powerful jump, like this monster jump, and it turns your character this red aura so you know that you're ready to do this jump. And um, and I, I, I hit the jump button and he just launches into the air. You could leap over castle walls with this jump. And um, Moonlight Tales, this particular mod, was made for um, the original Skyrim. And it was never redone for the Legendary or the Anniversary mod. But there is a way to use it and put it into both those updated games even though it's in the main, you know, the old, you know, Nintendo version of Skyrim, it, it, it's the programming still works. 
I forget the workaround for it, but there's a little bit of work to it. And um, it, so it took me a long time to get that mod to work. And uh, it finally was worth it, though. I keyed up that jump and I launched my guy. And he just he leaps through the air like a, like a horror movie monster, you know. And uh, just goes to town on his enemies. And so that was so... That's still stuck with me. It's probably happened... Uh, well, that didn't happen with this computer. It happened with another computer. So this is a the second computer I bought for a, um, modding Skyrim. Because I, I think what happened was um, I broke my other computer by just too many mods. And I, I think I, you know, I'm not that snazzy with it. And I think I just overloaded it and broke it. Um, it still works for YouTube and stuff. but um, And it runs DDO. Like I could dual box with it, but it just sits downstairs. I never use it. Um, but I bought this one because, I mean, I had so much fun modding it. And what ended up happening was about a year went by. And I just got the itch to play that game again. But that something that sticks with me is the role play scenario of that, you know, the 60 or 80 hours. I think it was like 80 hours to get to that point in the game. And um, that one moment uh, made all that extra work uh, so much worth it. Because it's exactly in my head, um, like if I was role playing around a table how I would imagine the DM would allow that to happen. Like he would do that kind of stuff to surprise me, right? Now, the werewolf, the forced werewolf transformations because of the moon early game, um, I had to be attentive, but there was I had so many seconds to get out of town or to run away. So they were, um, they were useful, but at the same time, they, um, there was, it was a, something I kind of knew was happening. It wasn't like, and I was like, now I can use this to my advantage because I've turned into the werewolf. And um, there were some rules initially for that that I had written out. Like I needed so many talents before I could have um, like mission control over the werewolf before, like in, like in the early game, all he could do was just run and feed. And it was fun. It was, uh, I had like this little thing set up and, you know, uh, he was, it was cool. It was tough because there were some quests I remember passing up that I really wanted to do, but it felt good. Like it felt good to be this character. And that's really, my friends, the beauty of Skyrim. And that's the beauty of just straight Dungeons and Dragons tabletop is that you can be this character. And what Skyrim in the modern community does is it allows you to be that character in that world. And, um, right down to those quests you pick and it doesn't uh, make you less powerful because there's other ways to gain that power. Um, and obviously the the game is really not balanced for you. You don't have to do it. Um, you know, there are guys that can complete it at level one. Um, so uh, balance really has nothing to, to do with it so much, but um, the rules for fun, the limiting the, the powers and the abilities and stuff that, that gives it a, a sense of realism that allows you to buy into the character a little bit more. And uh, I love DDO. I love Baldur's Gate 3. I love that they're going to let us mod it. The uh, I don't know how to say it. It's been said by other reviewers that Baldur's Gate 3 has a cinematic quality. And it is true that the conversations can be I considered somewhat cinematic and there are certainly events that take place in the game as in any other game that are uh, scripted or just a straight cinematic sequence right whether in-game graphics or um, told through a 
you know, like a little vignette of uh, high-powered uh, scenes. Highly, you know, highly intense graphical scenes. Um, so there is that, but there, there, there's something more there that I think um, makes it makes that punch harder. And it's not just that it's um, well done in that regard, because other games have done that well. But I think it not only does that well, but it incorporates the dungeon master narrator narrator into these scenes sometimes when it's necessary and it always grabs your attention and then the way they marry that with the dice rolls in the the D&D 5th edition rule set is um, it's just stroke of genius and I think I know my buddies um, mentioned it in his but I always thought that I mentioned it first but I know he mentioned about uh, languages and incorporating languages and um, that is in uh, this uh, this game, but I don't know that it's uh, that it's being used yet because we're only in Act One. But certainly, your proficiencies um, and the roles that take place behind the scene that the player doesn't control is um, you know that that's impactful. You know, and it's uh, certainly, if not interesting, it's definitely full of immersion, and I'm sure. It leads to quest, quest completion, side quest uh, completion. I just haven't experienced it yet, but I'm sure that the system is built for more than just, uh, you know, well, the statue looks pretty. Do you know who the statue is? Roll your dice. It's more than that, right? The uh, criticism I have for that particular system while exploring dungeons is that when it comes to traps, um, from what I've seen, I haven't, I could be wrong if someone knows I know you can't correct me in the comments, but you could make a post on the forum or shoot me a a forum, uh, whatever, e- a forum email, Mr. Fantastic, um, on the forums, and uh, let me know if there's a way around this, because the biggest frustration I've had is uh, disarming traps and, and detecting traps. Uh, every party member rolls perception checks to find the traps, but if your rogue fails a tra- trap and everybody fails it, you have to like... Uh, try to like in a it's not Minecraft but what was that game you know that mind game uh, that came out with like Windows 95 you have to like try to zero in like triangulate where you think the trap might be because hopefully the ground is set up in a way like that the tiles are obviously pointing to this stone head in the side wall that must be the trap or this um, thing that's really strange and it's jutting out from this pole and no other pole has this this particular sharp object shouting out, maybe that thing will shoot at you. And then you have to back up. So once you identify the area that you think has a trap, you have to you know, take each party member, back them out, and then bring them back in, physically click to roll that check. And you have to get far enough away that the perception roll resets. That's been immersion breaking and um, kind of frustrating. Um... The story is about the character you make in Baldur's Gate 3. And um, the companions are, um, so far, unfortunately, they're all, um, and, and they, you know, they kind of have to be to some degree, but they are all uh, uh, DM controlled, for lack of a better word. Uh, Larian has them all set up for you. I wish that there was a pool 
I don't know how else you would do it. Um, and uh, we know Larry in Studios is uh, definitely listening to this podcast. Uh, but I don't know how else you would do it. But if there was a, maybe a pool of characters you could to select from to insert into the part of the game and just the early part of the game so you could have access to them earlier. So if you wanted a bard, um, you could just put her in the story earlier. And, um, you know, if her story unlocked later, it just unlocked later, you know. But um, it, it it makes it, you can't customize the classes of these, these characters that are given to you. But they're all very effective um, and they're built very well. So it's not like um, you don't feel like you're carrying them at all. In fact, I feel like they're uh, very well built. And this is brings me back to the conversation about Pathfinder 2E and the difference between both systems. Um, and it's more than just one is horizontal and one is vertical. Well, Pathfinder 2E is mostly horizontal. It does have some vertical progression. Um, whereas D&D is, while we already discussed, and this is kind of the point is, and Pathfinder 2E does this okay. Definitely 1E did it great. But 2E tries to streamline it. And in doing so, I think it just, it loses some of what I'm about to tell you is the good parts and also the bad parts of 5e and why to, why Pathfinder 2e is an alternative. Because with the D&D system, characters are extremely powerful. Like each character in and of itself is powerful and um, needs the party less than in any other iteration that I've played so i mostly played 3.5 and then 2e was very tough you always needed to have potions on you um 3.5 is is tough only depending on you know you can make some really crazy ass character convert uh you can have like you know 30 or 40 ac at level one almost depending on what races you're choosing um but even just you know for shits and giggles at level three a noob could have you know 34 or 40 AC, you know, with just a couple of couple of uh, flips of the pages. It's easy to figure out in 3.5. Um, so there's, um, there's some means in 3.5 to kind of overpower your character like that um, in a very meaningful and kind of game-breaking way. What I mean about dungeons, so far there's no multi-classing in... Um, Baldur's Gate 3 um, for the D&D 5th edition rule set. I don't know if they're going to incorporate it. I have seen a mod that allows it, but I don't know how that mod is going to work and if it works effectively and if it will work with the other mods I have installed. So I'm not modding heavily right now because I don't know what the game is going to be released with. If it's going to be released with a multi-classing system, and I think that's been said that it will, um, I shouldn't need... um, I shouldn't need a multi-class uh, mod. Obviously, I'm going to have to uninstall the game and uninstall the mods and all this stuff and do a clean install when the game releases. So I don't want to add too many mods because, like I said, I broke a computer doing that with Skyrim, right? So um, I do think I might, I might I might get a new computer for this Baldur's Gate game. I mean, it is pretty awesome, guys. Pretty damn awesome. But what does that mean for DDO? Does that mean DDO is a thing of the past? Ha ha. So this is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, the game, Baldur's Gate 3, is great. I'm pointing out some of its flaws because I want you to know that, um, you know, from somebody who's played it, um, you know, it's great, but 
something to think about that you're not going to be able to pick your companion's class. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. There is a multiplayer option, which I would love to test. So if you have the Baldur's Gate 3 early access and you are interested in trying to see how the multiplayer function works, Mr. Fantastic on the DDO forums, and um, I'll do you one fucking better because this is how important this is to me uh, to get this right because I think it will help uh, DDO and DDO's development. Um, My Google account for uh, the podcast here is uh, Mr. Fantastic DDO at gmail.com. That's one word all lowercase. Or you can just hit me up on the forums. It's whatever's easiest for you. But I would really, really appreciate it if anybody has the time and is willing to in the the next few days, the next week, um, to play the game with me, to try it for a couple hours. Um, We don't have to role play. We don't have to do anything. We can just sit down and test the system or we can role play it out. It just really, I'm really very flexible. I just... um, I really want to get into it because I think it could be valuable for um, DDO. And this is where I want to take the conversation. Because while Baldur's Gate 3 is incredible and um, super fun, it's not DDO. Okay? DDO is a real-time system. And uh, they I praise them for making the changes to... Uh, I don't know what team did it. I wish we had... Um, you know, I wish we had teams broken down, so we don't need to know who's in the teams, but we need to know what team did it so we can say, hey, team lag killer, great job. Because um, that's really important. And I think um, if they're going to continue down that road where we're going to fight the lag monster together, um, I'm willing to see them focus a little bit more on that and then focus uh, some more on that real-time engagement uh, that and exploit that because that's one of the great things about the game is that um, it kind of it takes you down to the tabletop level, but then it strips away the um, the freeze mechanic of the turn-based system, and um, it's just a great way to play and experience uh, Dungeons and Dragons. It just is. Um, it doesn't Baldur's Gate three doesn't take away anything from uh, DDO is, is is what I'm trying to say. I still have the same amount of fun. And fondness for DDO, um, even after discovering Baldur's Gate three, okay. And I'm not gonna like not play uh, DDO, um, and I'm certainly not gonna be um, over taxed with either lore or anything. I I, I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and will enjoy my having my foot in both these worlds. What I'd like to be able to do is take a look at Baldur's Gate three and some of that role play mechanic. And see if there's any way we can mimic, even if it's a false mimic, um, with their role play system they have, because it's just um, it's just so much fun, and um, I'd like to see something like that come to a DDO where the conversational choices. The last uh, podcast I had, I mentioned the listening skill, and I don't remember what example I gave, but it was excellent. Um, uh, it was an excellent example of, of how to improve that skill and make it valuable um, almost as a combat, you know, because it seems like everything uh, that players use in DDO to character build, it all revolves around combat. And um, that's true in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, it's less true in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition because the characters are just so 
oh, overtuned. I mean, a lot of them are overtuned, and it's a good thing. It, it's it's a good thing. Um, but then again, sometimes it can be a challenge for for players or for DMs to make a challenge for a player. Um, this is the great thing about this uh, game that Larian has set up is there's a couple of encounters that um, uh, you know, I'm playing a hexblade. So uh he's not like super overpowered. I mean it's um very powerful to have um a gish character go to um one ability score. Now we have been experiencing that in DDO for a long time, but if you try to do something like this in pen and paper, like if you've tried this uh, uh if you tried anything in pen and paper and if you can't try it in pen and paper, I would say get the Troika game. And uh, if you can't get that, then get either Kingmaker or Pathfinders, Wrath of the Righteous, get either one of those, and um, give those games a shake as far as um, what we're talking about here. Because the characters are just um, having one ability score um, be your primary two hit, two damage, and DC is... um, is really really powerful. I mean, it in and of itself, it's a huge game changer. Um, in the other systems I mentioned, um, you're going to run into uh, at, at the very least a dual, and then definitely a triple uh, multi uh, a multi ability score dependent character. You'll run into a mad character if you try to build a gish. Um, you might be able to download some mods, but I'm tr- what I'm trying to say is don't do that. Just try to make a Gish character in, under those systems using those rules, and you won't uh, find it, um, at least in those games, there's no represented options of um, a single a single stat for that character. I know there's an intelligence feat in 3.5 that you can take, wizards can take. I don't know if they've ever added one for um, the other... Uh, the other casting ability scores. So I will preface that, that there are, there is a feat, um, and I don't remember what it is, but I remember it's a, it's a qualifier feat um, for, for wizards, I think. And so you, you have to have a, you know, this intelligence score has to be so high. And I think it requires some type of spell slot or some type of other um, martial feats too, to, to qualify for, but it allows you to use your, um, at the very least, two hit, but I'm thinking two hit and damage, but I could be wrong. I'm not going to Google it on my phone or anything. I'll let you guys, um, if you're interested in that, I'll let you, I'll let you do the research. It will be more meaningful that way for you. Um, but to be able to do something like that at level one, even um, though your weapon selection is limited until you can unlock the Pact of the Blade at level three, it's um, it's uh, incredibly powerful. I, uh, I have a lot of fun with it. And um, in uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition, it seems that uh, at least for the first f- five levels that I've played, um, your characters are powerful to a degree for a certain amount of time, and then that time is expires. And uh, you might be able to do it again, um, like you know, increase your power again for that combat encounter if it's long enough. But then it will set you um, back for the next combat encounter, enter the short rest, long rest systems um, where some characters feel more powerful than others. And in fact, um, some characters can be built uh, to not need it, um, not need to sleep at all. 
warlocks are actually one of those. Uh, an elf for a full rest for an elf is four hours. Um, in D and D fifth edition, so while they're limited, um, while they have limited, uh, you know, limited, uh, you know, feat selection as opposed to like the variant human or you know whatever you're going to pick the half elf. Um, a full rest in four hours will be powerful depending on what class you were, right? So if you were like a Sorkadin or um, you were playing a, a blade singer or something like that with the wizard class, being able to rest for four hours, and I think that's what a short rest is, four hours. I should Google that because that's something you shouldn't be looking up. Let me, uh, let, me, let me Google it real quick. I got the phone out. I'm already on the Chrome. Let me just, uh, let me Google it here. It says, uh, how long, how many hours is a short rest? That's what I'll type in. Five E, it pop right up. A short rest period is a period of downtime at least one hour long. Where a character does uh, nothing more strenuous than eating, drinking, reading, and tending to wounds. A long rest uh, is eight hours. And you can, um, the hard rule that a character cannot take more than 24 short rests in a single day, but a short rest must be one hour long. So I don't know, um, I don't know now that I've uh, seen that rule, um, I still think that having an elf um, do a long rest or a Four hours is, is a long rest, I think, is important. Um, but I don't know if how they would translate that or if it's translated into uh, Baldur's Gate 3 at all. I don't know. I uh, was under the impression that it was, uh, you could basically short rest it. Um, like you could just say it was a short rest. Like at the table, you could say, oh, my guy's going to short rest because that's how I've seen it used. Um, that's how I've seen it used. So I uh, thought that was like a pretty huge benefit, as it was explained to me, of be going elf, because your biggest benefit really is going half elf is one of the best races. Um, at least for, you know, the, the ones that are out um, for Baldur's Gate 3. So how does this, like, mechanic at all even enter into... Um, DDO and and it, and it's there. It's uh, and like I said in the last podcast, DDO is kind of ahead of the game, right? DDO is aware of short rests, long rests already because in our dungeons that we have, we already have rest shrines, right? And those are not D and D three point five, right? That's not in D and D three point five. So, is there a way to uh, is there a way to bring those rest shrines back into a uh, back into use again well and can we exploit this mechanic or build this mechanic back into um our games and our characters and um in ddo well first off um i think we could and i don't think we need to name it short rest or long rest um because i don't know what uh what their um contractually uh, if they're contractually bound to stay away from other editions uh 
specific terminology as it comes to rules and their expression in the game. However, I do think that um, you could bestow upon the party leader, a, you know, a, you know, do you want to use the shrine at 50% or 100%? And then I think um, that that would help uh, give more discussion as to the shrine itself. Now we need to make the shrine useful, and that's difficult to do with mana, correct? It's also difficult to do with the SLAs, correct? Um, so we're talking really caster types, and um, and even including melees. But I would submit to you that because they've um, they've AC is a is less relevant um, in this system that uh, the fact that hit points deteriorate is. Um, is enough to, to balance them. I would suggest that there um, should be some kind of cap on uh, potions and the amount you might be able to use between rest shrines. And then how do those reset? Do those reset at 50% of the rest shrine or 100% of the rest shrine? I think that's a question for the developers and uh, something that should be tested. Now, we have another issue, right? Player power is way, way out of whack. To give you an example, when I first started the game, I remember seeing my first two elemental weapons in the harbor. It was mind-blowing. Somebody had the Sickle of Sifiros, which was, any players out there that were around, remember this bad boy, it was a plus one frost sickle that did 1d6 damage, no burst damage. And, uh, you know, melees would carry that bad boy. It did an extra 1d6. And um, the game's uh, two-handed um, system wasn't as fleshed out. Although it still was good if you could get, like, I think it was the Maelstrom Axe. There was a Maelstrom Axe that dropped in Tempest Spine that was level 2 for a long time. And then they changed it to be, I think, level 4, level 6. Um I think they'll have some of the old Maelstroms alone. I'm not sure. that They may have gotten fixed in future updates. I don't know. But it's a very powerful great axe. There was always Carnifex. Carnifex was always a great choice for for two-handed low-level weapons. But that was, I think that's a level 7 weapon. And a game that was capped at 10, that was more, uh, you know, that wasn't used uh, to farm out uh, past lives. That was used as a somebody's real weapon <laughs> back in the day. And it was because that crit threat multiplier meant a lot more than it did. And that 1d6 damage on, on swing meant a lot more than it did. And um, your AC mattered. So having the shield and um, was a benefit. I don't know how to fix that problem, guys. Um, there's no amount of... Uh, uh, of... Um, Additional role play mechanics, conversational and or dungeon navigating or any other otherwise uh, that are going to um, uh, fix the loot and the um, the balance issue that we have. And um, it's sad because the game is it's just not balanced. And when we say it's not balanced, um, we mean it's it's not fun, as fun as it could be. And uh there was a, a time when it was very rare to see, um, you know, uh, flaming elemental weapons at low level. I would um, love to see a return to that. And I think um, 
there's a way they could um, use the hardcore server as a test for some of these things we're talking about. Um, and I would push that, um, I would push the envelope with that, uh, that gear thing. And I would say that um, uh, when it comes to, uh, say, named chests, right, um, in hardcore mode, for let's say, that you only um, get one shot and you don't get to collect any any named loot out of that chest ever again. So if it doesn't drop for you, you just don't get it. And that would go for encounter areas. It would go for um, optional boss mobs. Um you know, the, the, the mob is welcome to spawn for you again. You're welcome to kill it and you're welcome to loot the chest. But you're only eligible for named loot one time. And if it doesn't roll, it doesn't roll. And um, if they were to change the loot table so that um, uh, they'd have to figure out where they want... Um, players to have access to plus one weapons again they'd have to figure that out because plus one weapons are magical and bypass and you know they bypass that as dr so they'd have to um probably consult the original game build and um i would suggest um you know looking at that using that as a guideline to where they want to uh, employ it now knowing now that um uh it's going to be for hardcore mode but then you can use that information and that um, that test right on the hardcore server, um, and just throw it out to the community. If the developers are going to keep in constant communication with us, or at least regular communication with us, um, you know, I know it's a pain in the ass for them to read the forums. Uh, the developers, I know. But if there's a way for them to uh, to start a thread and unfortunately um, you know, have somebody read them, you know, even if they have to read that one thread out loud in a group meeting and take turns uh, reading it, and uh, you know, each each developer just m- makes a note on what they want to speak about, and everybody kind of come together because it, it would take kind of a, a long time, but not too long, not more than six months or something like that, to come up with a a decision on how to handle um, magical loot and um, loot progression and, and where players find the most satisfaction with that. Um, I think that's why when, um, you know, my buddy suggested the uh, some mode, but then I suggested like the arch-villain mode, which is a little bit more story-oriented. I do think the similar concepts are that the gear is... Um, the gear is extremely restricted in those modes, and um, when you die, you uh, go back to level one. So I think those are the two um, two um, consistent scenarios, and um, I do believe that uh, you don't need to reward players necessarily with more power for a system like that. Um, but the arch uh, the arch villain mode, I think, would direct them into certain quests. Um, it could be a path that was built at random, I think, uh, or that would have a, f- a handful of quests that it could pick from. You'd have to read the um, post because I'm not going to go through it here, but uh, the Archvillain mode it just essentially takes the player through DDO on a sort of scavenger hunt 
uh, tracing down artifacts and bad guys uh, to uncover an arch-villain's ultimate scheme and um, lay that to rest. Um, my original idea was that it would go up to level 20, um, but that they would be non-raid oriented, but they could be, you know, they could be, uh, they could start at any quest. So in level, you know, if you were, you were, uh, level one to three, it might start in a, a level two quest and, uh, or, you know, and you might have to read the note, you read the note, you do the quest and in that quest, the, there'll be an event an optional event that you can complete that would take you further down the arch-villain path and unlock more stuff. In that mode, the Reapers are reskinned and the um, champions are retooled so that they don't have necessarily as much power as they have now because the point is to make um, all your stat choices and stuff meaningful again. And the best way to do that is to balance the game around the player's stats, right? Uh, their ability scores, which is what D&D is based around, your ability scores. So that would mean any extraneous modifiers would have to be, in this particular system, would need to be weeded out. So there would be, uh, that, that, might, that alone might take six months to balance or a few months to look at and retool. But I think you could do something like that for hardcore. And then eventually, um, like in a, in a year or two, employ something like that into uh, into the live game itself. And I, I just know that um, you know that is what players clamor for in the hardcore server. And from my own experiences on the hardcore server, what I enjoy is um, experiencing that um, vertical progression of power, experiencing the reward of a well-studied rule set and a well thought out character um, it's it's uh, too bad that we can't add role play mechanics in that are similar to the Baldur's Gate one that would balance your combat choices against your ability to play the game um, as the character that you've designed you know and uh, I think the downfall of the Path of the Righteous and the Kingmaker franchise is that there's a lot of builds that get through the game um, very well with just with a, just a straight focus on combat, and um, that's uh, you know we use the same rule set three point five, so that's something we should be aware of. But it's also how you implement it into the video game itself. And Baldur's Gate three does a great job of implementing that into the game itself. And um, that I think that's why I would recommend uh, uh, taking a look at Baldur's. Baldur's Gate 3 system and, and seeing if there's some way to add uh, some of their uh, those role play mechanics when it comes to uh, knowledge and speak speak speech checks and um, also when it comes to um, uh, you know making those loot rolls a little bit more um, meaningful is is to only allow someone to have a role at it once and um, I know that's kind of shitty um, but it, it definitely would work, and it definitely, for me, what spoils hardcore is, um, you know, the um, the longtime players use it to abuse the economy. So they go out and they farm, you know, good low-level gear, and they fill the auction house with it, and they, uh, you know, they they 
they fuck with the game's economy even more, and that's not what hardcore is supposed to be for. Um, so a great way to do that is to just limit um, limit your access to those uh, named weapons, and you, you just get one chance to roll for it. Uh, I don't know how many tiefling swords and all these other low-level weapons I saw, but um, yeah, I think that that should be addressed, at least in hardcore that should be addressed, and I think there should be a way to um, try to figure out how to bring that to... Um, to the live game because I'll be honest with you my SSG friends and developers that um, the reason why hardcore is so uh, so much fun is because it um, it's as close to the early iteration of the game as you can really get Um, that's something to consider Um, the reason why I kind of took a a couple of episodes to go over the uh, or at least one episode to talk about the history of those early nerfs, whereas, you know, those were not tongue-in-cheek nerfs, and they were, um, they were certainly malicious, and uh, there was nothing wrong with, with what the players were doing at the time, and um, it only caused more problems for the developers, for you guys later down the line. Um, I mean, I remember even uh, as late as... Uh, I think it was a giant hold was out, um, and we were playing the the Demon Queen, a pre raid, and somebody had decided to make a uh, um, you know tactical uh, Kopesh fighter based on stun. It just wasn't a popular idea at the time, and uh, it may have been pre giant hold. I don't know. I'm thinking it's after giant hold because I think it was kind of based on um, some stun rogue builds that were out. Uh, for the sneak attack at the time. And uh, it might have been, you know, it might have been, this is a theory talk, but it might have been after the change. I I, I don't remember. I'm not going to even guess because I don't remember. But I remember remember this guy's build. And I remember the guy's name. And uh, he doesn't play with us anymore, but he played for a long time and ran his own guild. He's a fun player. He's good. And uh, he loved loot, but he never uh, never let it get between him and his friends. He was a fun guy, good leader. And he was a guild leader for many years, and he had this build. And he would, I remember uh, we were doing the Glyphs of the Sword, and, you know, uh, back then everybody would get a Roman, you'd read the puzzle, and you'd do them in order so you could get to the Demon Queen fast. And uh, we had it down back then. And uh, this guy could, uh, I remember he, uh, I was waiting there and I think I got locked out. He, you know, we used to race each other into those rooms back then. And uh, it was always a point of pride if you could handle a room like that by yourself. Um, even though it wasn't a raid, it was the pre-raid. Um, there was still, the game was still hard enough uh, that handling a room like that uh, was still, while not maybe super impressive, it was a point of pride for any character, well-built character. And uh, he cleared out the room, and the glyphs of the sword popped. And, uh, you know, it goes to Cash's shield on itself with his backward hands, the rock Kasha. And uh, he just fucking stunned it, and like two hits it was dead. One hit, I don't remember. It was funny. And it was so funny, I'm like, can you do that again? So we, I think we, we didn't have enough people to do all of them at once, so I followed him to the next one. I just watched him do it to the next one. It was so funny. I'm like, I can't believe you came up with that. That's great. And uh, I don't know, it was a week or two weeks or a month, but, you know, they nerfed it and they made those guys, uh, you know, they gave those guys tags so you couldn't uh, stun them and kill them in two hits. 
because it was that important uh, to the developers to spend time doing that because they felt that's just adversarial to do that. Um, it didn't unbalance the game and it gave nobody an unfair advantage. It's just um, it's an excuse to uh, grief the player base. Uh, and that was prevalent back then in those in those days. Those A lot of those changes, um, no, nobody was asking for them, man. And uh, they sold them uh, like it was going to give you more uh, more options, but um, you, know, you and I know that the more difficult you make something, the less options you have, and um, difficulty back in those days um, was not defined uh, by. Uh, by your reaper number. You know, we just had Elite back then. Elite was uh, used to be pretty brutal. You have to remember when they uh, rebalanced, the, uh, rebalanced the game against Reaper, they made Elite significantly easier and took away the XP from that, the XP bonus from that, and uh, um, had Reaper 1 give you a, a, a significant increase in XP. I think it was 20%, but I, I think it could be more now. I don't know. Um, and that has everything to do with, uh, you know, breaking the game in, in the early game. You know, starting to add mob immunities, taking away player power, taking away um, player build design and player creativity, um, and then adding in other things to try to make up for it didn't didn't really work out. It just kind of created this balance issue that we're talking about right now, trying to make the game fun and add in RPG elements and make the game a little tougher. Um, I find we're talking about putting the game back to its almost launch state because it was fun then. It was hard then. Waterworks was fucking hard, man. I mean, um, game knowledge fucking counted for something back then. I remember the first time I played SDK. Those traps were deadly, man, in SDK. As I recall, there wasn't any hard elite. It was just you wanted these quests. There was no normal hard elite. So you fucking went into SDK, man. You can get your ass handed to you. And I remember the first time game knowledge. I saw game knowledge play. I was playing with a beta tester. And uh, it was very early in the game's life cycle. And I remember the first time I saw a guy, he jumped. Uh, he avoided the uh, flame trap there on the bridge before the big flame pit with the spikes and the minotaur and the shrine. He, you know, he jumped, you know, he kind of leapt onto the side and started fighting the, the bad guys on the other side. A couple of them died in the fire trap. Uh, but he's able to take out the caster. Um, you know, the game was already built with favoring the mobs. You know, the mobs don't, um, they don't have concentration checks. They don't have mana issues. You know, they don't run out of ammo. So they had already, uh, the game was kind of already tilted in their favor, which made it kind of difficult for, uh, for us to play with, for us to play with as, as, as a faithful interpretation of the rule set as a turbine could handle producing at that time. And it was pretty good. Um, but that made it difficult. And I remember, um, if not me, I remember reading other people on the forums being like, how come I can't, uh, interrupt enemy spellcasters with damage and um, 
I also remember, I, I think I remember posting or reading a post about um, 3.5 has a rule that if you take so much damage from your uh, from a single attack, you either die or you're, you're completely disabled, like you're completely knocked out from the blow. And I forget what percentage it is. Um, but I remember that that needed to be in there. It wasn't in there. And it was important that it was in there it was very early in the game's life cycle that they started increasing um, uh, pl- player damage increased pretty pretty quickly, and I remember thinking, "This isn't we gotta we gotta have this rule in here because otherwise, just gonna the monster players are gonna be able to do it, and we're gonna be able to do it, and then nobody's gonna be abiding by that rule, and it's just gonna you know it becomes a DPS race at that point, and nobody's gonna care about their defenses, you know, and it's already gonna start you down the path of you know." not balancing the game properly. Um, I was okay with the mana system that they devised for the casters, but I, I was a firm believer in, uh, you know, range touch attack and range uh, and touch AC. And um, dexterity being an important stat for uh, casters that want to use rays and whatnot and touch spells. And uh, they, you know, I remember at least reading and probably posting well, probably not back then. I didn't post, but I definitely remember reading. People were suggesting all this stuff in the very early parts of the game, and they never they, like they ignored those um, those suggestions, and that would have helped um, prevent bring us where we are now. So it's difficult for me when I look at a game like uh, Baldur's Gate Three because the 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 rule set itself is such that some classes are they are pretty overtuned. I mean, if you just Google and take a, a couple of good Reddit suggestions on how to build like um I'm gonna tell you this build, the seventeen three um uh hexadin, seventeen hexblade and three paladin. Because I think that's to me that's probably your best bet. There are other people who say nineteen paladin and one sorcerer is what you want. That may be. It probably depends on if you want to be more paladin or more of a caster and how much you want your patron to pay a role, play a role, potentially. I know um, in the play-by-post uh, that my buddy ran, you know, the Raven Queen was my, my guy's patron. And um, that was definitely a very interesting uh, application of uh, creating, a, you know, my Hexblade Pact and the patron. So if you don't want your patron to be a big part of your story like that um because i don't know if it's going to come into play later uh now that whatever but i'm just saying like you know if you just wanted to limit that and just say uh you know he took this power i don't know how how you'd what you'd say but you could role play it anyway you could flavor it any way you want the one level on the paladin but um with the 17 warlock what you're looking at is is a you still you're still a warlock and um with this oath, you could be an oath of vengeance, say, uh, paladin. It just it makes sense. You can be other ones, other oaths. But I think the oath of vengeance does fit well with the the martial and militaristic and violent um, innateness of the hexblade class. Uh, so seventeen three would be my recommendation if you want to go to Reddit and look that up and look up the math behind. Um, uh, because I forget it, but it's simple. But I forget it, and I'm I'm just below simple on the smart scale. There's um, 
There's a um, no left from right. Can you tie your shoes? Um, can you drink your milk and not spill it? And then there's like the the common sense normal. I'm just below that. So I can't uh, explain all the number of D8s that are possible um, on a crit, let's say a great sword. Um, I can tell you that uh, multipliers in D&D 5th edition, everything is just doubled. And crits generally happen, I believe, only on a 20. And they can expand up to 19 and 20. And I think in very rare cases, 18 to 20. But don't quote me on that. I think the most expanded uh, crit range is 19 to 20. Um, and it just doubles the damage. But it doubles all the damage die. So when you have something like... a a Paladin Smite ability that you can put on ninth level spell. Um, it does like an additional D8 per the sp- spell level. Um, I think I'm remembering this right. Per the spell level that it's used at. So if you used, um, you know, your... Because uh, you can put your Paladin spell, even though your Paladin spell is only like a level one spell uh, and you're only three levels of Paladin you can slot it into a level 9 Warlock spell and then spend that ninth level spell slot for a Smite. And it would be like 9 D8s that would be doubled immediately because you would only really want to use it on a crit. So now it's 18 D8, but that's before you can... I forget, it's not Brandishing Smite or Wrathful Smite, but the, the, hex, the, the Hexblade Warlock gets another Smite that can also double... But uh, 18d8 on a crit um, is pretty powerful, especially uh, when you're going to consider adding other an- another something very similar to that to that as well. I, f- I forget the max damage. You can look it up um, if you're if you're so inclined. Um, to me, I- I've done a lot of reading on the hexaden, and I know when Baldur's Gate three comes out, I'm building mine 17.3 because the spell slots, those ninth level spells or whatever spell slots you get. I think it's ninth level at 17. It's just too valuable to trade for like more hit points or whatever. Your versatility in combat and stuff is just, it's too too good to pass up. And then for me, the role play potential is what, you know, I still want the role play potential of uh, both having somebody that's out for vengeance and someone that's like cosmically tied to uh, to um, some kind of false deity or some type of uh, cosmic power. I just think that's really really interesting to role play and very edgelord and fun uh so my Baldur's Gate character will probably be that um but I I kind of say all that uh because in DDO we don't really experience uh combat that way and um since I got into the math and I told you I shouldn't have gotten into the math and explained it a little bit, I totally, I'm not lying to you, my mind is blank as shit. It's totally fucking blank. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have got into the D8s, man. I get confused. I told you on the scale. I can barely tie my shoelaces. Uh, you know, I chew erasers off pencils. I'm not that smart. I can't talk about D8s and other stuff at the same time. Uh, you know, it's terrible when you are the joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just totally forgot where I was going with that guys I apologize um, 
I totally, totally, absolutely forget without going back and listening to it. And I'm not even sure I can do that. I've never done that before. But I don't know how important it is. But you know, we're laying the foundation for this, and I want it to be good. That interruption to you was not very long, but it was um, it was one of those things where like I rolled a one basically because I I wanted to talk about how powerful um, vertically the characters are in DD Five E as opposed to the more or less horizontal progression in, in Pathfinder Two E and. I somehow got sidetracked and started talking about um, DDO game rules. It's important for me to try to link all this stuff back to DDO, I guess. And um, I think I got the subjects confused. And I wanted to talk about the difference between the Pathfinder 2E and the D&D 5E. And went on a tangent about... um, how they nerfed my friend's build and then somehow um, how each uh, each small change kind of made balancing the game harder, not easier. So let me just um, start by saying the previous example um, as far as the warlock crit on a uh, like an eldritch smite with divine smite it's uh it's something in the realm of like just um a ballpark is uh like like 15d8 just and that's um a very conservative figure that doesn't include other features and uh other things that the warlock class could do at 17 warlock uh it's being pretty pretty uh pretty hefty damage with a swing uh from uh from greatsword at any rate um, it's different from uh, class features in in Pathfinder Two. You won't find um, you you won't find uh, increase in damage without uh, like if you were going to uh, play kineticist or something like that. You're not going to find that type of output. Um, Without a significant uh, weight, time weight, so the, the uh, kind of out of the battle, and uh, Pathfinder is very much a team game where you're fighting as a team, and the feats are designed to help you uh, your action economy in that regard to help you fight better as a team, not just help you realize your uh, character's uh, f- fantasy. Uh, or help you enhance that certain feature because you like it. You, whereas you know, you can do that in uh, in D and D five E. And I think um, both systems have merit. And I think you're going to find that both systems start borrowing for each other. And in fact, they already are. I, I already a couple weeks ago, where we were when we were testing these, I was talking about how you know they're going to steal some of the stuff from each other, Pathfinder and. Um, and uh, Wizards of the Coast are going to start blending each other's rule set because they're both good. They're both good, but they're both missing each other's uh, hook, you know? And um, it's fun to have vertical power progression. Look at Reaper Mode. That's fun for people, right? When they 
increase their Reaper points to uh, the maximum level. That's something people uh, enjoy seeing. It's a fake system. It's a bad system. I'm always going to tell you that it's a bad system because it's uh, power for power's sake. And uh, it's an inflation of numbers for an inflation of numbers sake. Um, we can go back and I can review more of the, uh, I can re- review some more changes and more release notes. And I guarantee you I'll find one that said they adjusted mob HP so that uh, they didn't feel like they were, you were whacking on HP bags uh, and it was slowing the quest down. And the Reaper mode is exactly that. <laughs> it's even worse because it, it really removes a lot of your, your, your build opportunities. Anyways, I wanted to uh, just focus on that just for a minute. The, the, the horizontal versus the vertical progression. And um, I, I think that you're, you've already, you're going to see a blend. They're already blending it. Um, I've already uh, seen some of the I really, everybody loves the Warlock iteration and the Hexblade, Pact of the Blade. There's not a soul that doesn't like it um, in D&D, uh, in the D&D world. Um, is that really true, that last statement? No, I'm sure there's some asshole that doesn't like it. Um, but everybody can agree that it's a very edgelord, very fun class to uh, play. Um and you see why, like my buddy, when he made that post and we're playing that play by post and he introduced that character, it was pretty epic. It's pretty awesome. And, uh, just the way it plays is like that too. It's fun. It's fun to play that class. Um, it's powerful in moments. They got really cool role play options too. Um, really cool invocations. And, um, if you keep it and here's the deal, because you're going to go on Reddit, right? And you're going to say, they're going to say this or that about how to play a a hexadin, right? Some people call them padlocks. I think the really appropriate term is hexadin because you really want, for I think for the most versatility and power, you really want that 17 warlock and and you want to dip into the three paladin for the divine smite and divine grace and lay on hands. But all your, I think, all your benefits are going to come from uh from having that 17 warlock there's a way because of the way the armor and feet system proficiency system works um you could even get your guy a little bit tankier by going a paladin first and getting the heavy armor feet so you could potentially dump your uh deck stat and uh focus even more on charisma although it caps out at like 18 i think they cap you out at uh if i remember they cap you out at levels how high you can uh, roll your character out. I don't think you can roll your character out higher than a 17 and you can increase it to 18 um, by like level three or four, I think. But you can't, uh, you can't roll your character out with an 18, I don't think. And uh, D&D, a fifth edition. So some of the stuff that I'm already suggesting is actually already in the fifth edition rules. Now, I didn't know that. I'm just uh, I'm getting familiar with the rules this, this week. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, I played the game on uh, Roll20 and um, just a, uh, a one session. And then um, 
I, you know, obviously I've had the phone open and I've Googled all kinds of rules when it comes to playing the Baldur's Gate 3 thing. And the reason why I think it's important is because I said it before in the last podcast, and I think the developers should listen to this. You guys, Standing Stone Games and Turbine, um, some of the changes you made are excellent as far as the rules are concerned, and they are represented in D&D 5th edition. So I don't think you should feel terrible about all the things that I'm saying. I just think that um, those key nerfs and key buffs put you in a position where exactly where you said you didn't want to be, say, by um, when, when you first introduced Epic, Epic Hard, and um, people were running into, Jesus, guy has a lot of hit points, I'll just stand here and whack him. And uh, you, you've certainly run into that uh, on Reaper mode. And... Um, if you haven't, because you can one shot or two shot or whatever it is with the casters, you've nursed the, nerfed the caster's ability to, to to DPS down, so you're moving towards that direction at any rate. At least that's what you're signaling. Again, I wish we had certain teams we could address, so they could like, you know, once a month, that whoever leads that team could just say, "Hey, this is what we're up to." Uh, hope to have more next month. You know, that'd be cool. Um, you know, the the lag team could say, "Hey, they're working on this or whatever," and I'm hoping to get this, this done, What you know, whatever it is. I mean, I think that would be neat. Um, and uh, you kind of break up the uh, responsibility of, of communicating um, with the uh, w- with the community. And it doesn't become such a chore, except for whoever's in charge of the, who's ever team lead. And then it gives Cordovan something actually he can do. He can walk around once a month and, you know, collect uh, everybody's uh, <laughs> forum posts. <laughs> Um, I'm sure he has enough to do. I'm sure he loved that. Uh, yeah, no, I think something like that would be helpful because then um, if my podcast isn't evidence enough and all the work that all the other content creators do on YouTube, on the DDO Wiki, uh, I mean on the DDO Compendium, if all this work that the players are doing and giving to you for free isn't signaling to you that we not only love the game, but we want to help you make it better. Um, I don't know any other uh, community that's going to reach out to you like this and, and tell you we do want to make it better. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to take all our suggestions and all ideas. But um, I think having uh, having your team needs break up and just, e- even if it's just a couple of sentences about what they've been working on this month or what's, what's going on this month and the next month would be helpful. Uh, because then we can uh, tailor our responses to um, what you guys are prioritizing. And maybe if we communicate enough, this happens consistently enough, our um, our priorities will align. Um, not going to please everybody all the time. Wizards of the Coast is going to prove that by uh, continuing to whitewash uh, the game. But we can work to a better balance of of a, like a really good iteration of this game. I think this, you guys have done excellent work on this game. I really like that new system where the, you know, the thing goes off on the head. I think that's going to be really fun for new players who, um, who want to play a rogue or a trap, like, uh, you know, someone that does traps or finds secret doors. That's going to be really fun for them to see because the exclamation point itself is well done. Like the graphic itself is, it's very updated. I don't know how to say it. It's dense. It's very good. Um, and I love the sound effect. It's cool. And I, I heard it like a million times when I was doing a quest. And I, loved, I was like, this is so cool. It's just better than the, the old one was just, it was a little dated. And this one is, uh, 
it's interesting because, uh, you know, if you implement that Arjuna mode, um, you could use that when uh, certain things pop up, like clues or whatnot. Um, anyways, uh, to get back on track with the, uh, you know, with the Pathfinder 2E, I can't really give you an example of their horizontal power. I can just tell you that they don't have... Um, They have three, you have three actions per round that you can take. And the feats and character progression is all about making those three actions go further. And it seems like your character isn't getting powerful, but he is. It's just not always explicitly from a numbers perspective. Um, you know, we can clearly see an Eldritch Smite. I gave that example earlier. It's 1d8 um, force damage plus 1d8 for every level sp of uh, spell it is. So it always does 1d8, and if it's in a level 1 spell slot, it'll do 2d8. And if you crit, it'll do 4d8. So if it's in a level 9 spell slot, and um, it will do 9d8, and then on a crit, it will do 18d8, or 10d8, excuse me, because it always does the 1, and then you add the 9. So we do 10d8, and then on a crit, it would do 20d8 just for the Eldritch Smite. And then your Paladin Smite can go up to 5d8, depending on the spell slot. It starts at 2d8, and then it goes up for every spell slot. So you don't need that many, you don't, you don't need that high of a spell level to max that one out, but it will be another 10d8. So you're looking at 30d8 for a crit you know, um, on a, on your damage weapon. And this is just ballparking. This is not your hex and all the other feats you can get, but that's very specific um, number buff as opposed to something like um, in Pathfinder, there's a, a feat you can take that allows you to attack. And then even when you like are basically out of, out of uh, action moves, you can still raise your shield in combat to... Um, to be defensive. In Pathfinder 2E, if you don't specify or use an action that your character's shield is raised in a defensive position, then you don't get the bonus to AC. And it takes an action to raise it. There are feats you can take, say for a cleric, um, if I remember correctly, that you can cast a spell with your your like your deity's favored weapon in both in your hand and keep your uh, shield raised, right? So that's a feat you can take later. And does that? That's kind of a direct number buff, but also it isn't because there are times when you're going to have to drop your shield to do other actions in combat. Does that that make sense? So there's just other the the feats they do are just um, it's about improving the action and action economy and playing with that system. The interesting thing is. Um, I haven't read all the rule changes, but they came out with some of them, and they directly borrow from some of the 5e stuff. And um, to boot, um, I wanted to talk about, before I so uh, epically lost my train of thought, I wanted to talk about how awesome the Hexblade was, because everybody said everybody loves the class. It's a very fun class to play, and it's a very fun, easy class to for everybody to like, because it's very... It's innately almost edgelord, but it could also be played several different ways. Um, for instance, in my play-by-post experience with it, 
Um, it's the only one I can refer to because it's the only one I had any control over what the character was. So in the beginning, the character was adventurous and whatnot, but he wasn't very powerful and isn't very sure of himself um, in a dangerous situation. He thinks he is, but he soon finds out that he's ill-equipped. And when the patron comes to rescue him, he's more still fearful than anything else of any action. And then when the pact of the bond is, when the pact sealed, the bond is sealed, the contract is sealed with the with the great sword, um, and he's possessed by this power. My plan for him was that when the power left him, when combat was over, he still kind of um, had to deal with the fact that he was just human, and it was almost like um, only those moments when he was tapping into that power did he feel um, complete. And uh, when he let go of that power, he would feel um, you know, less. I never got a chance to really role play that too much because uh, you know he got killed. <laughs> but uh, that that was kind of what I was going for. I I think I don't really, you know, probably my buddy could have said it better. But that was like my idea was that not that he was like a Hulk per se or that he, um, but more like. Uh, like a reluctant Power Ranger, I guess, if you can see it like that, you know, like a, a reluctant dark Power Ranger, I guess, um, who made a blood pack with a Zordon kind of thing. Um, so something something kind of like that, I guess. Um, but also that there was a bunch to explore too, like uh, how much say did he have in signing the contract there with the greatsword? He certainly completed it, but, you know, what was his presence of mind at the time and was he being taken advantage of? Certainly, if it was from a legal standpoint, if any type of deity um, were to um, suggest strongly to a mortal that they should enter this pact, um, at least in legal terms, if you could say that that's a person in authority strongly suggestion to another person who's not an authority but under that authority that you should do this you could that could be considered a crime in our court system right so exploring that aspect of the of the bond as well was something i was interested in doing so there are many ways you can play it it's still a dark edgelord class for sure but there's just a lot of exploring look different ways you can go at it and it's powerful and fun to play and Everybody kind of had their own version of it. So, how did uh, Wizards of the Coast handle that in their new iteration of D&D 5 rules? They made Warlocks a half-caster class. Um, direct nerf to uh, the Eldritch Smite ability and um, the power of the Hexadon having ninth level spells, you know. Uh, that really sucks. Uh so I'm hoping that uh, it's not none of it's set in stone, and um, I'm not sure you you'd have to use those. the The shitty part is like you know it's going to be like the official rule set, right? So um, I don't think anybody's going to really use it uh, that plays a hexadin or plays a paladin um, because the class itself isn't brokenly, stupidly overpowered. Although um, if you Google it on YouTube, you can find some 
uh, builds and experiences where, where people were like, geez, like every freaking combat encounter, this, uh, this dude that playing the hex blade, he's like showing us all up, but you know, that it kind of balances out. Um, you know, there'll be, there'll be lulls and levels. The issue is, um, these campaigns are, uh, that people play, they don't generally run the gamut of one to 32 or one to 25 or one to 20. They, you know, D and D fifth edition isn't really balanced at all. <laughs> Certainly not past level 10. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the campaigns do end at like 12. I, that's one of the complaints already against Baldur's Gate three, just as a sidebar is that, um, it's, uh, It's it's going to have a low level cap, and pe- people wanted it to go up to twenty, but it's just the further you take that D twenty system up, just the more broken it gets. It gets hard; it does get hard to balance up that way. But certainly, when you create other problems with uh, monster immunity and and unlimited power, on to some degree, on the monsters, you're going to have an even di- more difficult time. Um, uh, Balancing the game, and I'm specifically referring to in DDO how casters can't be interrupted, and um, you know enemies uh, don't seem to have a uh, a limit on ammo or anything like that, or mana <laughs> for that. And, and that doesn't have to be necessarily a bad thing. The issue is um, it started that way, and then as the game progressed more monsters got more immunities and increasingly did that you know they increasingly and 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 why did they do that you know they're trying to uh present the players with an adequate challenge and uh they didn't know how to do that and uh you know that's unfortunate um that they didn't know how to do that or couldn't couldn't figure that out you know um yeah, I'll take this example. Pius Gruel, Gruel in uh, Stormcleave. You used to be able to vorpal him. You used to be able to, you know, hit him with con damage to zero. He was a tough cookie back in the day, and he came up with those Blackguard uh, skeletons. Now, those guys have had their ACs nerfed. We went over that uh, over that nerf in my, um, my podcast. And uh, he always spawned, I believe it's with four arcane skeletons he spawns. And they were tough. They were tough because they started to immediately cast Cloud Kill over the whole area. And that gives uh, the enemies 20% concealment. And it gives the player con damage each time you step into it. And the time frame I'm talking about, reaching con of zero, killed you. So they were deadly. You wanted to take those casters out first, not really Pius Gruel. Sometimes you might have one guy that wanted to brave him, like brave the Pius Gruel. And I'll try to take him out and lead him over here or something, lead him away from you guys. Because he has that, you know, that kick slam attack that could knock you down. So, um, so some of the issue was he uh, he doesn't come equipped with Death Ward, so he can be Vorpled. Now, that's a five percent chance to take his head off. That you still have to confirm the crit. You know, you still have to build. You got to confirm the crit, and you have to not get killed by those casters. And those casters were deadly. I'm telling you, they were. De- I know they were deadly. It didn't matter if you had the Vorpal or not. If you have zero con, you have zero con. You're swinging a weapon. So instead of them engineering that encounter 
to make the players think and make the uh, that particular encounter um, work and more in their favor. They just gave them. They just gave Pius Corell immunities. You know, tactical feats to stat damage and to um, death effects from a weapon. And I would imagine probably Phantasmal Killer too. I guess it would probably be a, a one of those boss death ward things. So, what would be really the better way for them to handle something like that? I mean, if you're seeing players do. Um, stat damage and use a Vorpal to take out an enemy, I think that's cool. But if you felt like it was happening too much and it wasn't happening too much because not everybody had Vorpals. And back then, wounding weapons were like min-level 10. Like if you had a plus one wounding weapon, unless it was race-restricted, which would put it down to min-level 8. So if it was a plus one wounding weapon, it would be min-level 10. And then if it was race-restricted elf, it would be min-level 6. So, Stormcleave is a level 8 quest. And if we're talking about after Elite, it would be level 10 on Elite, correct? So, it's a level 10 quest and they're using approved level 10 weapons. A plus 1 longsword doesn't do that much damage if it's doing minus 1 to con. Now, it does when you consider, like, if he only has 15 con... You know, you might be able to swing at him. I don't know how much con he has. Say he has 20 con. He's a giant after all, right? So say he has 20 con. I mean, you know, I think five swings takes him down to 15. And if everybody focuses him down, he might die quick. And if you got two guys with the wounding, yeah, you might kill him real quick. But wounding doesn't work against arcane skeletons. So what? Like, what is the better? They had a really good mix of enemies there. You know, and um, you could easily wipe the party back then if you pulled that rune and, and unleashed the methods while you were still dealing with the uh, just the arcane casters. Just to, you could still wipe the party. So this I'm talking back when the cap was ten. Okay, so you know when you're talking, there's like ten vorpals on the server. Say at this point, right? Maybe five. It's five or ten Vorpals on each server, maybe. And there's a lot of servers back then. Um, and this, you know, this really hastened, you know, people leaving the game, these changes. You know, it's it's very simple for Standing Stone Gains to pull up their um, population and watch how they unrolled those changes that we talked about last time and watch the, the backslide of of how they lost customers and then had to merge the servers due to those changes. And now, they've tried to bring some of that stuff back, but they've done it erroneously. And that's my point. But let's continue with this uh, Pius Gorel. Because they can program the mobs to do whatever they want. We know this. So, if players are using wounding weapons, and I would say it's hard-pressed to find a wounding bow back then. You might, but I, I doubt it. Maybe. But I doubt he would be. You would want to range Pius Gruel because he's probably going to catch up to you and kill you. Um, he had the hold spell, hold person, and uh, he, among other things, um, he would very easily hold you and smack you. Um, so I, I, oh, not to mention all the other 
if you try to exit that area, you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with the quest and know that many other archers and, and uh, melee spawn if you retreat back um, while fighting Pius Grell. I mean, a very simple fix already is you've got like two to four casters that spawn. And they um, they cast and inflict wounds and they're not just arcane casters. They're skeleton casters. And um, why can't one of them cast a death ward? Why can't they just cast a death ward on Pius Grell? Because it can be dispelled. Wouldn't that be good? Because if it could be dispelled, then wouldn't the dispel spell be useful then? Because you could dispel it and then someone could try to Vorpal and someone could try to stat damage. I mean, that would be good, right? And what about the stat damage? There was no way that Pius Grell could cast a heal on himself. I don't know. Three seconds into the fight, four seconds into the fight. Or a restoration, maybe. Because back then, I don't think we had heal. But there were other mechanics that were already existed in the game to make the fight more fun and more reactive. You know, I don't know what mob AI looks like. And if you can program mod AI, mob AI to suffer a certain amount of stat damage and then cast the restoration spell. But I know you can program the arcane skeleton to cast it after so many seconds. If you think it's so broad of a problem that everybody's using this strategy, um, you can still use the rules to your advantage. You're the DM. But you're not just supposed to say, oh, well, I'm immune. That's not how a DM DMs. That's not how it works. You, you can look at the numbers and see how many people you scared away by doing that. Um, I don't mean to sting, but it's hard not to because the game was fun, more fun in the state. Um, and um, it was in, the biggest issue early DDO had was the content drought with the Atari lawsuit. That's the biggest um, hurdle I think we all, as players, had to overcome. Most of us stuck it out, and then we stuck it out, and they uh, had the server merge and everything. Quote-unquote was fine. Um, but we did have... Uh, I think we had AC right up until... Um, Twilight Veil, and then it was after Twilight Veil, I think they got rid of AC. And they added in um, the grazing hits and glancing blows. But again, that's just a, a cheap feature, you know, that's a cheap, uh, cheap way to try to introduce challenge. And that's, I want to have a discussion on how to bring the game back to that it's challenging and fun, um, but not limiting and not um, full of you can't do that and this doesn't work on this because limiting the effectiveness of, say, displacement, which is a 50% chance to get missed, limiting that 
you might as well just make it blur. Like, why not just change it to blur? Well, it's not blur. It's displacement. Is it? It only works on, what, noob difficulty? So it's not really fair to the players. It's not fair to you guys to even program it or for the game to... We're talking about lag. Why don't we just cut that spell out of the game? I don't understand it. If if it needs to be less effective, let's just stick with blur, and blur will just work as blur because we don't need displacement. So I just think if taking a step back and trying to use mobs more like in that fashion, more strategically, is um, is a much better uh, design decision than just making mobs immune because you're trying to introduce challenge. Um, I remember one boss that was really fun to fight in his early stages was uh, was Rayun. You know, uh, casters were... We're still pretty powerful then. You know, Magic Missile was still pretty good. They had some good spells back then. Firewall was great. It was different, but there was still some caster supremacy happening. Don't let any of these old codgers lie to you. There was still some really good caster builds out there. Um, but, you know, casters weren't the best at defending against arrows. And that was, even then, that was still a great, uh, you know, they had to carry a shield or they wanted to switch out to a shield. It was good. It was a good gameplay back then. But bam, damn, they were surprised when they ran against uh, the Lich King, Ryum. And he was immune to what, level 4 spells and lower? That was awesome. That was tough. I remember that was like, shit. Because if you had like multi-class builds that you were running, you're like, oh man, I can't use this, I can't use that, I gotta go into melee, oh shit. Uh, it was fun, man. That was, a, that was a good time in the game's life cycle. Um, I think adding those other role play elements will do nothing um, if we don't have a conversation about uh, about player uh, about the gear issue, um, the the rule changes to PRR, MMR, and dodge, and um, the intentional um, decline of certain uh, defensive abilities and spells for players. And then the uptick in immunities and uh, hit points for mobs and DCs for mobs. I mean, you'll notice, guys, this goes directly to developers, you'll notice that after you made the uh, DC change with the stats and you lowered the DCs, your fan base was happier. You know, 10 people ten people that had really awesome builds might have been upset. But um, I know people who came back during that change just for that. And I wasn't even playing then. I've heard about this um, because I had questions about why my caster was working so well. And someone enlightened me that you guys had uh, decided uh, that the DCs might have been a little too high and lowered them across the board. And I don't remember, I don't know the number, I just heard that that happened. And I, geez, I think that's a great change. This is a great change. Um, But if we look back through all those release notes, we'll see um, a continuous increase in power for for casters and um, a constant limiter, a governor on on melees. And uh, for really no, no reason. I mean, had the game... 
had they not introduced MMR, PRR, and Dodge the way they did, casters would still be supreme right now. They still would be. Because you could still make AC GISH builds that would fucking be awesome. Um, and melees would still need to have some kind of relevancy. And the fact that they can't perform tactical feats on very dangerous enemies um, is an issue. Uh, even if it, it's okay, okay, so they're immune to Vorpal and uh, they constantly cast heal on themselves, so they're immune to stat damage. Okay, fine. But let the guy be able to stun the fucking thing and keep its aggro while everybody else gets to have fun blowing up all the ads. I mean, I'm just... trying to give you what a a player sees as a perspective. Um, Because the game's really fun. I play Baldur's Gate 3 and it's going to be historic, I think, on release. Um, It's going to be historical. It's very, very fun. Um, But I still think DDO is fun. And I just... If you could take some of these other Dungeons and Dragons elements, reintroduce them back into to the game in some cases, and then introduce some of these other elements, um, I think you this MMO will be stronger than Guild Wars Two for sure. You know, um, absolutely stronger than Guild Wars Two. I, I I just think um, what it had in the beginning, like when it was released, what made it special is what the developers decided to say made it not good or not like everybody else. And I specifically mean the powerful items and weapons weren't, you didn't see a lot of those in the beginning of the game and that was okay. You might have had a plus one weapon or a masterwork weapon. That's good. That gear, that slow gear progression was awesome. You know, I still remember when I had two plus five long swords. It's fucking awesome because they were hard to get. So, well, two ones that look the same, I should say. <laughs> um, that three no thing, that was hard, man. That was a, it was a hard quest back then. So, you know, I, I think there's a real, I always believe there's a real potential here in this game. And uh, you know, I'm pleased with the changes you have made. And uh, I'm very pleased. The I know some people were upset about this healing out of uh, combat with Reaper. It's, it's just silly. Um, I think Strim Tom hit it literally, you know, nail on the head when he said um, it takes away the tedium. You know, because that doesn't make it hard. That makes it tedious. And so does adding random monster immunities because you don't care to program a more strategic mob. Pice Grow is a boss fight. Spend more time on it then. I don't know what to fucking tell you. But don't just give things blanket immunities because you're fucking pissed because some guy has a wounding scimitar and his buddy has a wounding longsword. What are they getting out of that fucking chest that's so important? That you had to, you know what I'm saying? Think about it. It's silly when you think about it to take away their fun like that. I'm not. I I wasn't. I wasn't one of those guys. I did have a wounding scimitar, and it was min level ten, and I still have it. But I wasn't one of those guys hitting them like that. I remember when I got it. It was when I got it. I was late to the game, but uh, I remember people using it. That's why I had it and used it because I remember it being 
so um, effective. But uh, and I'm not saying that the developers here now are the ones that uh, created the problems or the ones that you don't. You, you may even agree with me, um, but I I still want to voice it and I still want to say it because I I think um, Baldur's Gate Three is awesome. But I think uh, if we can uh, get on the same page here as far as um, what's fun, what makes DDO fun, what makes hardcore so much fun, why that's such a big draw for you guys, or why that, uh, why you should consider adding something like that into the live game and using your hardcore seasons constantly. Like that thing should be running year round and you should be updating that with all these ideas, you know. Um, because that would be great. I mean, you talk about all these racial past lives and they make your character so much more powerful, sure, but what if um you were you went to the uh you know that a new reincarnation where you're uh you you're not allowed bow to account about you no know, previous gear, you have all your feats and shit, but um no previous gear and you enter that new new hardcore system where if you die you revert to level 1. And you only get one shot. Unless it's a raid chest. You know, you can raid as much as you want. But as far as all the other named loot goes, if it's a regular chest in the encounter area or in a quest, you get one chance at named loot. That's it. It's going to reduce player power, yes. Yeah, But it, that, that's going to increase the fun factor too. And... If you think it won't increase the fun factor, that same character should just be able to log in, hit a selection button, and unflag himself for the new live hardcore mode so he can put on all his juicy gear and then complain that he's too overpowered. You know? And that's that's when you'll see. That's when you'll see the... Uh, you know, the men from the boys, so so to speak, when it comes to uh, who, who wants a challenge and who doesn't, when you implement something like that. Because that's one of the few ways to make rolling the dice important is to make it something you can't repeat. And when you talk about ransacking a chest on hardcore for really, really powerful low-level items that you can then use to exploit the economy of the hardcore server and then bring that economy that broken economy back into the main servers if that's what you want i mean that's how i kind of got on this train of thought but also it's super fun hey you only have one chance to roll on that chest dude that's it now you might be able to um you might want to tweak um the percent the drop percentages at that point you may want to um up then you may not want to. I, I don't know. I don't know how the drop chances work. And, you know, if um, instead of, uh, I'm just guessing, but if, say, that tiefling short sword and the, uh, and um, in Three Bell Cove, right? Say, you know, you it's 10 chances to ransack a chest. And I don't know. I'm just spitballing this and I know I've I've ransacked a chest several weeks in a row and never got what I wanted but let's just say for argument's sake that every one in ten pulls you guaranteed one of those 
a player is guaranteed a one of those tiefling short swords. What if you make it every one in five? So now if you bring six party members, you've increased your chances a great deal. Now they're not all clicking the chest in succession so that they can ransack it because you only get one roll. But now you're increasing you're you're increasing all kinds of stuff. Party diversity, all kinds of stuff. And that kind of philosophy should be bleed into how you manage player power and abilities so that someone can make a build that doesn't rely on this new, oh man, if you have that at this level, it's fucking epic. And it's okay for you know players to spike in power as they level up, but you want to make sure that um you're not just gimping other builds or other other play styles either. You want to make sure we're fulfilling all those fantasies. It's okay for players to be powerful. It really is. I think they don't want to be. And that's what hardcore represents. The tradition of non-power. You know, the... That makes absolutely... I just totally made that shit up and tried to make it sound authoritative. (laughs) What I mean is... um, a push for a more balanced uh, Dungeons and Dragons experience. And people run the past lives feet to be powerful. And I, and I just think that, um, I honestly think if you have those on your character, that's great. And you should never balance around those. Too bad, so sad. Don't run racial past lives. But I think um, it might be considered a reasonable trade off for these folks, uh, these longtime folks, that, um, hey, I don't have a. Uh, you know, if they're playing this new hardcore mode on live and they only they can't get a plus one weapon until, uh, you know, they don't say they don't get one to drop until like, I don't know, uh, Waterworks or something. You know, the Waterworks end chest has, you know, or your reward list. So say uh, the end chest that, you know, say, you know, one of the end chests after a boss fight, you know, you, know, you have a 10% chance to get a plus one weapon. And then you have another chance at the... Uh, at that final reward for the chain, you know, and then you could have a, a separate, um, you know, a higher chance for an armor reward, say for the Harbor Master, a plus one leather armor or something. And you see, if you you bring the stats crunch all back down to something like that, uh, players are going to love you for it and they're going to have a shit ton of fun. And then it's going to make those past lives way more meaningful because um, if players aren't aware what i've noticed is in order to shrink the gap between people who have racial past lives and people who don't um the developers have just inflated um gear ratios to to an incredible degree um to minimize the stat gain that um between the two um between the two players so that if you have those stats from racial past lives once you equip gear it just doesn't matter you're astronomically better than any any mob aside from all their immunities and their guaranteed hits and all the shit they can automatically do to you because that somehow makes the game more challenging it doesn't um but uh it 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 shrinks the gap between uh what it does for the new player, the player who doesn't have racial past lives, it just elevates them to a point where, you know, where they, they may not have the racial past lives for the enhancements. They uh, have um, a strong survivability chance, much stronger than 
if you were to pair them both down and give them plus one armor, plus one buckler, and a plus one rapier. You know, the uh, completionist build is going to be much, much stronger. And I don't mean necessarily the... Uh, I'm not talking about the epic completionist stuff now. I'm just talking about the uh, heroic and racial, the, the stat increases, and not just the uh, those other extraneous stat increases, which were a poor choice. They should have just stuck with the... Um, I think with the ability score enhancements, and I think that's what we need to get back to is balancing against the ability score increases that we roll out. You know, make those more meaningful and then stop. Because what's happened is, oh, I could just talk forever on this. I really could. What's happened is they're, they're so bloated and inflated because everything's out of whack, you know? Everything's way out of whack. And it's because we have additional rule sets that we're trying to uh, support for quote-unquote balance and it's not working it hasn't worked it won't work and uh remember when i'm saying this i just want the game to be awesome please um if you disagree with this um feel free to take me to task on the forums i don't mind having a a discussion about this i i think my suggestion here and today is um in order to have a a more interesting and meaningful experience. Um, we got to have some kind of system where players can reincarnate into a, uh, a hardcore mode type character on the live server that only gets um, no past life gear at all. No gear from the bank, no anything, no access to the player bank, no access to um, uh, nothing. He has no gold. It will take the gold, and you're going to have to get rid of the gold, or you'll lose it. You'll just delete the gold if you don't get rid of it. And um, yeah, and no, you know, probably disable his uh, the use of his shards, like on hardcore, so he can't be buying stuff off the crystal shard market. And then um, he only gets one chance. Uh, the hardcore. This new hardcore reincarnation would only get one chance at uh, um, one chance at named loot from any boss quest or special encounter quest in an encounter area, and you wouldn't be able to roll again for it. Um, the only way to get those items would be there when they drop. So if you really wanted to make a dummy account, I guess, and you could bypass the rules that way, but... Now you're cheating. The player would be cheating. So that would be up to Standing Stone Games how they would want to handle that. I think so. something like this, you'd come out with a, a forum post of what your idea is and what you feel like how the rules should be played and not change them because you're unhappy with the creativity of your player base, right? So the expectation would be that to some degree you're aware of some of the more obvious exploits and you're going to address them uh, straight out. Uh, we are aware that this can happen, and um, you know, no, you know, no. Um, the only people that can trade uh, equipment in chests uh, with a hardcore character is another hardcore character. You know, so I mean that 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 seems almost to fix the problem, right? Because you might be able to dual box all the way up to level twenty, say. Uh, but now you just get two chances out of quest, and if somebody dies, you're back to level one. And uh, 
that should not reset your chances to get more loot. That should um, should remain the same. But so my suggestion would be that, and then um, you know, when, when you die, you go back to level one. No, uh, no gear money from a past life, and um, you know, your one chance at um, at named loot and any chest as previously described, and um, a complete uh, a complete overhaul of the loot table for hardcore characters, so that. Um, well, you may have a chance to pull a plus one item in doing harbor quest. You have a the highest chance um, near the end of waterworks, and then um, a significant chance uh, for your end reward for uh, the the waterworks mission, and then the harbor master saga. That's what I. That's what I'm kind of suggesting right now. And then getting rid of uh, the PRR, MMR, and uh, the uh, Dodge system the way it is. Just absolutely removing that and going back to the original, um, going back to the original implementation of the mob stats and the... Um, uh, your mob to hit and AC values. But I think there's room for growth there because I can see, you know, redoing some of these enemies um, that spawn um, to be a little bit more fun and to be a little bit more tactical. Um, I think a player with a, a ranged trip attack uh, would be a lot of fun. And I think if he was... Uh, uh, his AI was programmed to, uh, I don't know, um, what would be a good person to put on their ass? The cleric? That would suck. Their balance is always low. You know, that'd be fun. And, um, you know, darkness is a, would be a badass spell now. You know, it's a, uh, be interesting. I just think there's a lot of interesting design because you guys would have fun. I think Stan, like as a developer, you'd have a lot more fun putting mobs in. You know, you're tweaking their AI a little bit against what, um, especially if you were to design new mobs that it was more easy, easy to to tune them to certain uh, to certain abilities and certain uh, proclivities. But uh, yeah, I do think that would be. Uh, that would make it way more fun. Like just thinking about it now would be makes it way more thinking about the dungeon design now under those rule sets is way more fun than trying to think about it um with you know a plus three artifact this plus three profane that you know all the plus two ship buffs. I mean, holy shit! You know your your plus three, plus four uh, chainmail, whatever you know your plus four stat items. Dude, stat items, plus four stat items were min-level 10, I think. Min-level 8, something ridiculous. Super high. You know, plus three. I remember I saw plus three stats. When I came back to the game, I was like, this is fucked. This game is fucked. And it is. The balance is fucked on it. It's still a fun game. But you guys fucked the balance up big time. And, uh, yeah, you can't do that. Plus three is too. It's D20 system. You can't do that. MOR, PR, bullshit. 
Um, the racial past lives are enough. If some somebody wants plus three shit, then run the patient past lives. Then, dude, that's how you get that plus three. <laughs> you can't just give it out for free. That breaks the game. Um, so that's kind of my suggestion. I would like to see something like that. Like just even if they just did it right up to waterworks, I wonder how it would work. You know, for people with uh, you know racial completions, it might be. Still pretty easy and fun. But they would feel, their power would feel like more of a reward. And um, that, that's a good thing because they spend a lot of time getting those lives completed. So having them feel more valuable is good. Um You know, when the game first started, people whined, man. That's really what happened. People whined and moaned. and um, Some people whined and moaned, and they were uh, people that didn't stick around in the game. And that's what, you know, a lot of these changes were to loot and AC were. Uh, Some of them were just straight uh, malicious attempts by the developers to, um, uh, quote-unquote, give players more challenge. And as we've discussed, it's pretty, pretty... uh, wide range of ability for a developer to uh, design uh, difficulty for player as opposed to just hitting the immunity button on the on the monster they made because they're upset. You know, because somebody, somebody has three Vorpals and Vorpal the damn thing. I mean, come on, 5% chance and plus I get a confirm, forget about it. Because I think if pairing the rule set back like that, um, starting there and just having like a fun there, that would be fun. I'd play the shit out of that, I bet. Um, I know for hardcore, what makes it fun is the danger. Um, I don't think anybody wants to take their completionist character and um, put him up for destruction. So I think a live hardcore mode would just have to be uh, back to level one. You know, just lose all their gear, like all their gear gets deleted or whatever. And they start back at level one. And any of the uh, chests that they hit, the name chests that they hit, they're not allowed to have anymore. You know, they're not allowed, that just because they die doesn't reset those chances. That way it depends, you know, like, do you go for that level 10 item now? When you know that level 10 item is good to level 16. Like, think about that strategy from a player. Player's going to be thinking about that. Well, what if I do pull it? What if I go with my guildmates and it drops and I get that fucking axe? But then what if you die and you lose it? You know, that's kind of a cool, that's cool, you know, that's cool, man. That's, you get to get a, add some stakes in there, you know? Um, You know, one thing we haven't discussed about this little, I don't know how we get on this freaking tangent, but uh, I owe you guys a good podcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my best, my best wildest tangent. So I don't know how we get on this, but um, one thing we haven't discussed and you guys have been listening to is we, I haven't mentioned what the reward would be 
at all. We've just had so much fun talking about, well, geez, what is it? What would it look like if we had like a, a kind of a true blue challenge? And just the idea of it alone seems like a reward. So that's something to think about, you know. 30 minutes of the podcast or so was just thinking about what it would be like to rewind the game back to that level 10 state and, um, yeah, and remove all those shiny weapons from everybody and you know, kind of make everybody even again. That's what the hardcore kind of does, but I just... My time over there is fun, but I also I see how it gets exploited, and you're never going to always get rid of all that stuff. Um, but that simple suggestion of you know only one only one shot at the name blue at the chest is good. Um, it's possible you, you could take a party. Now I've seen bots on there, and I'm not sure if they're um, they must be just players that play bot other games and sell on uh, illegal websites. But I've seen people bought um, you know bought. Uh, like several, you know, like they have AXY11, AXY22. You know, they have you know, 100 different characters and they follow each other along in a train. So I've seen that um, in the game. So you're never going to completely uh, get rid of all that stuff. And then you're never going to get rid of players' creativity around trying to um, get what they want, even though you tell them they can't have it. So I think your approaches have changed and I think the game is great. And I'm here to tell you that. I'm here to tell you that the game is great. Not saying that, but um, I want to see it last, and I'm trying to. I'm just coming up with ideas and trying to figure out good ideas to make that happen. Um, I never checked uh, the new player or the new um, shit. I never checked if anybody um, on the forums. You know, I usually do the uh, suggestions and ideas thread. Let's see what's on there. Eberron Adventure Pack idea. Coffers of the Keeper. Monk Archetype. Uh-oh. I'm not going to say that guy's name. Mobs Warping to you should appear in front of you. What is this? This looks interesting to me. It's not a suggestion. but When mobs warp to you, Hezru's Reapers perhaps, they appear behind you and not in front of you. This is a problem when you just started casting a spell before they warp since it will not land. However, recall cooldown and spell. Um, maybe it is the same on non instantaneous abilities. I don't know. It would be great if the mobs could appear a few feet in front of the character instead. <laughs> I like this guy's response. Yes, and it's behavior. It's right behavior to mobs. You miss your spell? Good. You were backstabbed from behind? Perfect. Oh no, this poor guy. He's just trying. You know this poor guy. I'm not gonna read his name, but you know he, this poor guy is just struggling. He, he's probably a new player. He doesn't have you know an eight thousand mana bar, you know, and uh, he's trying to have his little fun. But man, these guys are lighting him up um, <laughs> and give you a five second warning before it happens. Incoming. <laughs> oh man. We have a great community. I mean, they're kind of, they're teaching them uh, in a very good way, very healthy way, clubhouse way. <laughs> That's, uh, here we are talking about trying to raise the difficulty, and this guy's asking for mobs to stay still while I cast PK. <laughs> 
How about uh, how about we don't add in um, your range touch attack and touch AC and shit? Um, the Kenku, we touched on that. I don't know how good I did on that episode because I was exhausted. Teleportation spells are difficult, man. They're hard on the body. Um, this is interesting. Group solo Zerg play idea plus a new crafting system. Oh, wow. This is a wall of text, dog. Um, I know this is my buddy was saying that he uh, when he does his post like this he gave me this idea to break up your like your lines of the post so that like people can read like just like one line and if they decide decide to read more and then if you break out the lines they can decide if they think that line is relevant and then if they feel like they miss something they can go back and get it but with a wall of text like this I might fucking spin out of control dog I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time, though. Saga tracking, that's probably relevant. A new enchanter, I did that. I, I really feel like um, this is a good idea, but I also feel like you can build it now. I'd like to see uh, someone help this guy out. Oh, geez, increased Reaper experience for lower levels. Come on. Yep, there's nothing really, uh, wow. Dude, old boy's got to get back on these forums, dude. He doesn't, he hasn't posted at all, dude. There's not a lot of movement in these threads. These are some old threads. Hexblade Warplat. Oh, yeah, so very Belgian. I like that name. I never went over this, this, uh, Maybe I'll do that next episode. We'll go over this Hexblade pack blade. I'll see if he's done. Because he broke them up and uh, posted them trying to get feedback. I don't know. I've already talked to him about the feedback. And he's already instituted my changes. He didn't ed- He didn't say, probably because I didn't post it on the forum. But he didn't give me credit and say he edited that shit. But uh, probably because I didn't uh, post it on the forums. I wonder what he thinks of this now. Well, I, I don't know. Oh, he said he edited those changes. Yeah, this would be a good one to cover maybe next episode. We're already three hours in, guys. I'm not going to... We're not going to go too much further. we got to wrap this shit up. I didn't mean to go on a tangent. I meant to basically say Baldur's Gate 3 is great and historic and you should get it. And DDO has a lot to learn from it, both from a role-play implementation standpoint. Um, what makes the role-play fun is when... It's tied to consequences. So that's what makes the combat fun when it's tied to consequences. Uh, We have no consequences in DDO for anything right now. So that's something to consider. And uh, we'll end on that note. Right now, there's no consequences in DDO for anything. Missing a roll, dying. You can't even damage your weapon anymore. That's how... Care Bear we got to borrow a term from the mid-2000s, 2010, I guess. So think about that. I'll leave you on this note. There is no way to risk it in DDO. I mean, you could if we count hardcore, but I'm talking about there's no uh, 
no consequence for anything you do. And that's um, the roll of the dice. When those things start clattering down on the table, that's consequence, my friends. And I'm just trying to figure out a good way to bring it back. Um, I'd like your help and your input, guys. Uh, I have not been faithful in checking uh, my um, forum account, but I did check it today. And I uh, had a couple of um, just friendly, uh, you know, friendly encouragement things, um, emails. But um, I will leave you with, uh, I did set this up and kind of in case you uh, just feel better or it's easier for the do the Gmail. Because it's inter- it's good, you know, it's, you know, it's good for you guys to correct me and to continue the conversation too. Because that will help me give, give me more ideas and maybe... Um, if I do run into a time crunch with uh, my teleportation spells and whatnot, I, uh, I might still be able to push out like a good 20, 25 minute podcast. You know, these aren't on YouTube or anything, man. So it's pretty limited as far as exposure goes. But, um, there's a lot of us that give a shit about this stuff. That's what I'm saying. If you guys want to hit me up, uh, my email address for this podcast is Mr. Fantastic DDO at gmail.com. Mr. Fantastic DDO at gmail.com. And it's uh, all lowercase one word. So, yeah, I don't, uh, I just, um, I don't know, normal conversation, that's it. And then we'll, uh, you know, I'm not going to name drop anybody or say anything. So, um, I'll catch you guys on the flip side. It's three hours and five minutes for me. It's it's easy. Another probably 30 minutes after this ends before I can get it out to you. I am excited to do so because I've missed doing these. Um, I love this game a lot, and I really want to see, uh, see it grow into what it can be, which is uh, a juggernaut. That's what I think it can be. I think we all know this could be a juggernaut. Um, we could push this game into such a frenzy that they have to make a second one. And that's kind of my goal because they we have enough here to do it. We just got to get uh, get the developers on board with what, with uh, some of the ideas we have. And uh, I know it will happen. All right, guys. I will, uh, I'm going to teleport out of here. I need to come up. Do I have an, uh, an exit interview? There's this uh, guy I watch on YouTube, Mortismo Gaming. He always says, uh, he says something. I don't want to say something like, may all your your rolls be crits and all your rolls be 20s. I don't want to say something like that. Let me, uh, I think I know what I want to, I think I got, what if I do a cliche exit? Like what if I did like a, uh, um All right, let's see this. This will be a Let's see if we can um Come on, where is this thing? All 
All right, oh, come on, come on. How about if I leave you with this? At least today, I'll leave you with this. And then you can email me on my new uh, fancy DDO email, on my Gmail. Um, if you guess what this is, I'll give you a special prize, um, an internet high five. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble, 600. Well, that's gay and long. Um, it's awesome, but I'm not a poet. Probably my buddy could read that good. I just need something simple, you know, like um, boats and hoes. Peace.